Hello and welcome to WGTC Radio, the official podcast of entertainment website, We Got This Covered. I'm Jonathan Lack. And I'm Sean Chapman. And that was music from Persona 4, but we are not talking about that this week. We got a lot of it out of our system last week with the two-part, five-hour Persona 4 podcast, extravaganza, extraordinaire, spectacular, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah. It went on and on and on. It definitely did. Yeah. So, don't worry, we're welcoming everyone back into the fold who did not, who never played Persona 4, and therefore yeah. could not listen to that podcast, because today on, on our podcast we have all sorts of things to talk about. We will be covering... Yeah, huge grab bag. Yeah, huge grab bag, and it's a, I think it's a pretty fun grab bag this yeah, week. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. We've got the SimCity disaster <laughs> to talk about. Yes, one of the most horrific game launches in recent memory. Crisis in SimCity! Yeah. <laughs> We're going to talk a little bit about the movies of 2013 so far, a little catch-up. I, I think this is a segment I know people like, just, you know, I review movies, but I don't really talk about them on the podcast. should probably do that from time to time. Yeah. And we've been, we're three months into 2013. What is there out there? Nothing. There's nothing. Then we're going to talk about some trailers that launched last week that I think are kind of exciting. We're going to segue into some Star Wars casting confirmations we got yes. this week from a, um, a reluctant George Lucas. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about a really dumb Justice League rumor that's spreading. Justice League rumors. God damn the bane it. bane of my existence right now. And we're going to do a segment we've wanted to do for a long time now because we keep getting these crazy news updates on The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Yeah. Everybody on Earth and maybe in outer space is in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Every character under the sun in the Spider-Man mythos is apparently in The Amazing Spider-Man 2. So we want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Because this is a movie we liked... And now we're a little <laughs> worried. Now we're just really curious, but yeah. we'll get into all that. Hopefully but, hopefully that news has calmed down so this podcast yeah. will not be immediately irrelevant when it comes yeah. out. But first, I want to talk about something pretty exciting. This is sort of our main like intro topic for the episode. I've also got another segment pre-recorded to play for you once we get through this. And that is, I wrote a book, and it is now available. Yes. And it is called. You may have read about it. You can go to We Got This Covered to read the details, or there's some other links I'll give you in a second. I wrote a book. It's called Fade to Lack, A Critic's Journey Through the World of Modern Film. Uh, this is a book project I've been working on since last summer, so it's been pretty long in the works, but it's it's really been you know in the works for longer than that because it is uh, you know a large part of it is collected from writings I've been doing since... Uh, since I was 10 years old, though the focus is 2008 to 2012. Um, you know, if you don't know this about me, I've been reviewing movies since I was 9 or 10. Started with the Denver Post's Colorado Kids section, this youth journalism outlet, in 2002, when I was in third or fourth grade. And um, last year, 2012, was sort of the 10th anniversary about that. So this book was collected sort of as a celebration of that. Came out in 2013, though. Because my uh, father passed away last year, so I did not get the chance to finish it. I've, uh, you know, I've, I've since gone back and you know finally finished it up, and it is out. It is available from Amazon.com. It is available directly from the publisher, and if you live overseas, it is available from Amazon Europe. So the United Kingdom and France, I know, have it up. I have not checked the other websites since a couple days ago when the book launched. Uh, it should be out on Amazon Italy, Amazon Spain, Amazon Germany soon enough. So if you live in any of those countries and are somehow listening to this English language podcast uh, and you can read English, because this book is in English. Yeah. Um, although what, you mean you didn't write the entire book in French? Yeah. Or half of it in French and half of it in German? I'm hiring translators to translate the whole book. No, not really. But yeah, I think it's a pretty cool book. It's 516 pages. It's split into five parts with some extra material uh, at the beginning and end. 
Um, you know, as I said, so, so basically, you know, I wanted to walk you guys through the book a little bit. It's, uh, like I said, it's five parts, but we open before we get to part one with, um, with this is kind of funny, I know people are going to make fun of me for this. We have a foreword, then we have a preface, then we have an introduction. So, so how did you decide in what order those came? That is apparently the official publication order if you have all three. Should be, shouldn't introduction come first? I kind of introductions <laughs> always be first because it's the introduction? I kind of agree, and actually it was originally all going to be one thing I was going to call the foreword, and then there are individual section introductions. But what ended up happening is I wound up getting my editor from your hub, Steve Ulrich, contributed the foreword to the book. So that's very nice. I wanted to have sort of an outside opinion, because uh, obviously this is all my writing, so get someone else at the very beginning. So he contributed a foreword. It's really nice. Then uh, the preface and introduction, again, these were originally sort of written and planned as one big chunk, because it's supposed to be sort of, this is all original material you can't find anywhere else, and you can read a little bit of it uh, on Amazon.com. There is an excerpt, and you can read, you can look at the book, look at the formatting, read some text here, and it's from the preface and a little bit of the introduction. And it's supposed to be a little bit about my experiences as a critic, my viewpoints on modern film and film criticism, and, um, and then the introduction is 10 lessons I learned from reviewing movies for 10 years. There's, you know, some fun ones here, like sit close to the screen because movies look good that way. That's, you know, anyway. But, uh, so, so, you know, so that's sort of what the introduction preface are. But originally, like I said, they were just going to be kind of one thing, and I realized they were really two separate topics to a certain degree. So I split them, and suddenly I had a forward preface and an introduction. So. <laughs> okay, then. Yeah, that was kind of fun. Anyway, so we've got those. Part one is my favorite films. It's a, it's a cool... This is one of my favorite sections in the book. It's just where I count down. In fact, the pilot episode to WGTC Radio, this is why this is significant, yeah. was the basis of this section. We, I collected this top ten list of my favorite movies for that podcast, um, which I was listening to a little bit earlier today. That was a good podcast. That was a fun one. Did, did about you, some good movies. Do you have like a whole section dedicated to The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad? Because no, these are mine. I know, but that's relevant. Seventh Voyage of Sinbad isn't only my favorite movie; it's the best movie ever made. Okay, so I think it would it deserves a place. Uh, But it's this this the book is about contemporary American film. So talking about an older American film. Well, you know, all that's that's all that's perspective, man. Yeah, I don't know. Like fifty years ago isn't that old in the scale. I know, I know. Anyway, it's got ten essays on my favorite movies. You know, there's a fun countdown because you can't have you you can't have a book about movie reviews without countdowns. Yeah, and then uh, twenty additional favorites. These have not been published anywhere else, so this is cool. Some little sort of mini essays on my. 20 other favorite movies or collections of movies I cheated and had things like um, the collected works of Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> so that, yeah, that one's a little unfair. I thought maybe, you know, like, the, you know, pack like a trilogy or like a couple of sequels together is fair enough. I've, I've got that and I've also got the collected works of Pixar. <laughs> so that's 12 movies, I think. Right just there. do like, you know, the collected works of Akira Kurosawa and it's just yeah, like, yeah. You know, he's got like 70 movies and yeah. one entry. So, and then part two is sort of the main event of the book. It's a collection of movie reviews. There are 55 reviews from 2008 to 2012. And I should note that while these have been published before, everything in this book, not just the reviews, if it was published before, it's been heavily revised, polished, edited. It's fully annotated for scholarly reference in the back of the book and and sometimes within the text. And um, I think they're all, they read really well. They read a little differently than they would if you were to read them, you know, online or, or in a newspaper as reviews. I think the focus here is more on sort of scholarly criticism of these films. 
But these are reviews, and there's a lot of, um, in addition to, again, each section has its own introduction, where I, I think they're in some part educational, talking about the process of writing reviews. I know a lot of people are interested in that, and there's, you know, uh, I don't know how much, you know, great writing there is out there about that, so I want to have that out there. A lot of the reviews have retrospective commentary, and again, there's sort of, there's an educational bent, there's also sort of just a, again, a retrospective bent to it. There's supposed to be sort of an interesting arc in this section of, Tracing my own writing and sort of how I how I view film and how film itself kind of evolves in these five years, um, and so there's a lot. What's cool about sort of delaying this book to come out in 2013 is I was also able in the 2012 section to get a lot of recent movies out. So for instance, there's stuff as recent as Django Unchained in this book, which I think is cool. I know uh, I, some people were flipping through this and thought that was neat. My review of The Hobbit, which I added an addendum to. My original review of The Hobbit had a section where I was explaining how the 48 frames process did not work for me. Took that out, replaced it with a little blurb here that I went and saw it again, and I'm like, yeah. I really, I, I approve, but, you know, I think it does take two times, maybe, for some yeah. people. Yeah, that, so. whole, that 48 frames thing, that needs to be like a book on its own that everybody who wants to see 48 frames per second movies need to read. Yes, that would be good. Oh, or at least, at least put out a good like scholarly article on the process so people understand it's not, they're not just fucking with you. This yeah, is really... it's like whenever you go into a movie, you have to like read it and like sign that you've read it so it's like you don't go in and be a fucking jackass online. Yeah. So part three of the book is film analysis. Now this is different than a review because obviously reviews are for people you know, in their original intention, who have not seen the movie. You're telling them whether or not they should. Yeah. There's definitely an analytical bent to everything I write, but these are full analysis pieces. You know, you're supposed to have seen the movies, and there's a lot of... This is my favorite part of the book. There's a lot of good writing here, a lot of fun stuff. There's a whole article analyzing Inception, um, in which I come up with... This, this is back from when the movie came out, and I, I read this for the first time in years when I went to put this book together. Totally forgot I wrote it, because I wrote some crazy shit in this article, including an entire interpretation where the whole movie is the dead wife's dream. It makes sense when you read it. I'm sure it does. But <laughs> it's, it's kind of like Inception. It kind of makes sense when you watch it. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you know, analysis of the film Drive, really good one from 2011, Nicholas Winding Refn, a little bit on the Tree of Life. Um, by Terrence Malick. One of my favorite articles here, a Subtextual Analysis of Batman Returns, where I, I kind of... I have to start by explaining, this movie's not a Batman movie, yeah. here's why, but it's a really good Tim Burton movie. They should have just called it Returns. Yeah, pretty Nobody much. Nobody would have any fucking clue what it was about. <laughs> a little bit on uh, Miracle on 34th Street, and then a really good one where uh, a Borat essay, which I actually wrote for a college class, where I explain how Borat should probably be viewed as a real documentary. Yeah. And it, and then if this this section is kind of fun, because if you go to the end notes at the back of the book, there's an entire, like, eight-page table going minute by minute through Borat, explaining whether the content can be viewed as documentary or not. And then a pie chart. So lots of good stuff related to that, that essay. And then there's sort of, this was a big deal last year when I wrote these. He's got a lot of traffic on We Got This Covered. Two articles analyzing basically the entire Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy. One on the first two films, and then a 20-page analysis of The Dark Knight Rises. So, we, we covered, between this article and our podcast, we covered that movie in depth. Yeah, yeah, with our podcast that was as long as the movie. Yeah. And then another one I was able to uh, get in here at the last minute, uh, an analysis article on Looper, which was a really great movie last year, and I'm, I don't think a lot of people got the chance to write you know, an actual sort of follow-up analysis piece, so I'm, I'm glad that's out there. Part four is a really fun one. These are from before my We Got This Covered days. These are the special feature articles. Now, these are, and this, this includes a piece of writing by Sean. Oh, yes, because, oh, yes, I remember this. 
So one of the, my special feature articles are basically, I have not done one for about a year now, but I would basically around the launch of a new sort of franchise or, or entry in a franchise, do a big article over multiple days. So it'd be like a, sort of like a novella, but you publish it in parts about yeah. critical analysis of that article. And the first one of that work, and the first one here is called The Twilight Challenge, where, and, and as the prologue explains, I realized I'd been bashing this series without ever reading into it. So I decided I'm going to read the book, I'm going to watch the movies, report on this. So it's like seven chapters, and chapter four is called The Children of the Night, because that's where Sean explains to us why the Twilight vampires don't count as vampires, and then all the other monster inaccuracies. Yeah. Yeah. Of which there were plenty. Yes. And then one of my other favorite chapters here is, uh, I think it's chapter seven in Twilight Challenge, has just some comments that I got when I was writing the article um, from people like, you know, friends and stuff who were thinking about the article. And, and it includes a quote by Sean that I really like here where he says, uh, I pray every night that Bela Lugosi will return as a real vampire and kill everyone involved with the making of the Twilight books and movies. Yes. I've always liked that quote. I've, I still do to this day. <laughs> it's just every night before I go to sleep. Yes. <laughs> that would be, that'd be a great news story, too. Bela Lugosi rises from dead, kills Stephanie Meyer. <laughs> I think the, the biggest point of that is, holy shit, Bella Lugosi's, yeah. Bella Lugosi's back, motherfucker. Right. And now we are not endorsing violence against the makers of Twilight unless you are reanimated Bella Lugosi. Yeah, yeah. Because you then there's are, a double like, benefit. Yeah. We have Bella Lugosi back. Yeah, exactly. There's my, this is my favorite article in the book. It's actually my favorite piece of writing I've done. It's called Priori Incantatum, Harry Potter Memories, and it's sort of a, a it's like a 40-page article sort of tracing my uh, the Harry Potter series, but through my specific autobiographical relationship with the series, because I started reading it you know, right when it came out when I was six and sort of on through my last year of high school. So that's a fun one. I really like that one. And then there's the article I did last year, which got me mountains upon mountains of hate mail called The Hunger Games versus Battle Royale. Uh, yeah, I remember you doing this one. Yeah, where I took on the, the controversy between these two. And it was, it's a very level-headed piece. My conclusion is... Yeah, duh, it's rip-off, but yeah. it can still be okay, it can still be good. Yeah. Lots of things are ripped off. Yeah. You know, I think that's a good piece. And part five is just sort of bonus material, it's called Speeches and Supplemental Writing. Contains some reviews on non-movie-related stuff, some albums, a little bit on Bruce Springsteen. Also includes a very entertaining review of the Streets of Rage series, which I, I had fun writing. Because I think those games, I got them for review, like, I got a review code for the Xbox Live version when those came out. And those games, just as retro beat-em-ups go, those are really fun. Yeah, yeah. So, that's just, that's just there for fun. And it's got some speeches. It's got the speech I gave at our graduation ceremony from GHS and my eulogy for my father. So, close out the book. And then it's got, like, 30 pages of reference stuff in the back and notes and bibliography. And the bibliography looks really sexy. I think it looks good. I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud of the index. Those are my favorite parts. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to miss the days where you'd stay up really late and then start complaining to me about how annoying formatting the book was. That was really entertaining. <laughs> yeah. No, formatting this book was a bitch. I did it all by myself. Basically, because Microsoft Word sucks, I had to do it like page by page, every yeah. page individually. There was really no good automatic process to make it do what I wanted it to do. As you can tell now, if you look through the book, it looks good now, but you know, in print and everything, but it took time. Yeah, Good time, man. It's also got now. now so, so this is sort of the that's sort of an overview of what's in the book, um, you know. And I guess people have been asking me, you know, sort of who's it for? What's the general sort of premise behind it? You know, I, I've been calling it a, a you know a sort of 
critical survey of modern American film viewed through sort of my own personal experiences because I think I have a unique perspective having grown up doing this. And so that's basically what it's for. And I think it's, I think, you know, if you like movies, and I think if you listen to this podcast, you probably do. We talk about a lot of them. Yeah. I I think you'd like this book. I think it's got a lot of good writing about film. Um, Not to toot my own horns too much. I just, I'm very proud of it. It took a lot of time to put together. And, you know, I recently... In the final editing stages, I did sit down and, and read the whole book through in basically one weekend, and I think it came together much better than I had ever sort of imagined. So I'm really I'm really happy with it. And I think again, if you like films, or if you are someone studying films, need good reference for modern movies, there's not a lot out there in print. And I know a lot of professors. This is actually another motivation for writing the book. Is a lot of professors in film classes will only let you cite like if you're going to write about a film, you can only cite print books. And it's really tough because no one yeah. writes print books about modern movies. Yeah, because yeah, it's too modern. Yeah. Nobody yeah. writes books that like that too often. Yeah, really, because the best film writing is sort of article-based. Yeah, yeah. And we do that online now. Mm-hmm. And so while we're waiting for academia to catch up, there's Fade to Lack, which has... It covers over 100 films. So hopefully, if you're writing a paper, you want to write about any of these movies, I think there's plenty of stuff in here. Uh, for you, and, and again, if you're just a casual person wanting to read about some good movies and a couple bad movies, I mean, it's got you know my seven-page-long rant about Sucker Punch. I like that one, or the one about That's My Boy, which got on the front page of the Huffington Post because under the headline, "Did These Critics Go Too Far?" That was a proud day. That's a real question. Did Adam Sandler go too far? Yeah, I think that's. Yeah, I was a little offended by that question, yeah. but <laughs> yeah, anyway. yeah. Any, anywho, so, and the other thing I want to say about the book is it looks really nice because I had a friend of mine named Shannon Wheeler illustrate the book. There's uh, seven or eight original illustrations scattered throughout, and then uh, original cover design and some illustrations on there, and uh, I actually recently sat down with Shannon Wheeler when I showed her the book for the first time, and we talked about the design process of the book, went a little more in-depth with some of the, the illustrations and things like that, so we're going to play that for you now. It's about 15, 20 minutes you can obviously look at the time codes on the show notes. Skip it if you don't want to hear any more about this book. We're going to play that for you now, and then Sean and I will be back with discussions of a bunch of other shit. Yeah. All right. All right. I am here with Shannon Wheeler. She is my good friend and illustrator of Fade to Lack. She designed the cover and did seven or eight illustrations for the interior, plus a bunch of other stuff you will not see in the finished product, but we can hopefully put it out online sometime. So, Shannon... I literally just showed you the book for the first time like five minutes ago. How are you feeling about it? It's so beautiful. I Oh my gosh, the quality came out like so good. We, yeah, um, we were both really surprised. I was really surprised because I thought it would be nice. I picked Create Space, which is where it's being published through, because I'd heard they do good work, but I did not know uh, it would be one of the nicer paperbacks I've actually ever seen. It's pretty high quality. Paper's really nice. Yeah, I the was... cardstock for the cover. Super worried about the PDF file not being too sharp. Yeah. It was looking pretty fuzzy on the Photoshop, but I'm really surprised. I'm pleasantly surprised. It looks amazing. Yeah, it's always something you don't you don't quite know how it's going to turn out, and they, they have to go through it. It's interesting. You know, you submit it. They have to go through a whole review process where they look at it and make sure you haven't given them junk, and and then they say, it's not junk. You can publish it, and you're like, well, I <laughs> hope you... Yeah. I'm glad I've obtained the label not junk. That's <laughs> an accomplishment. I think it's great. I'm really happy we could work together on this. So, Shannon, we know each other from high school. Yes. <laughs> yes. Shannon and I went to Golden High School together um, in Golden, Colorado, if the name did not clue you in on that. And uh, when I was a junior, you were a freshman. Yeah, yeah. I think so. It was yeah. 
Wow, it was super fun. Because I'm a sophomore, yeah. I'm a sophomore in college now, and you're a senior in high in high school, and you're about to go off to college yourself. Yes. So yes, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so we we always hung out in orchestra because I played the viola, you played the cello, and uh, we just sat in our respective sections and made snarky comments. Oh yes, it was fun times, <laughs> very fun times. I don't know if Jonathan's talked about this, but we had to write a concert review after one of our concerts. And, you know, Dr. Graves, our pro, oh, not professor, he's our um, conductor, sorry. But he's a doctor, <laughs> so you kind of think, like... <laughs> yeah. yeah. But he, you know, he's a grammar Nazi. He's really concerned with structure and everything. And then Jonathan just, like, pulls this, like, narrative out of his ass. And it was the most hilarious thing ever. And, oh, God, I don't... Like, what did you get a grade on that thing? Oh, I got full credit. And it was... <laughs> So here's the thing. We one of his assignments he would do every time we did a concert because you know you you practice your music, you perform it for an audience, and that's kind of what you do in, in orchestra music classes anytime. And, and he would always have us do this thing where we would write a review of the concert we did, saying what did we do well, what did we do poorly. We would listen to a recording and do all that. And I was I was sick of that at a certain point, and we had just done the worst concert we'd ever done. Like, it was a train wreck. And so I wrote a story wherein. Two detectives are investigating the attempted suicide of a man who listened to the concert, and that was, and it was like it was like ten pages long. What was the thing about the car? Like he, it was so bad that he drove his car through something. Yeah, he drove it through Golden, Colorado, and drove it off the bridge in the middle of downtown, which is where you go into Clear Creek, and basically crashed in Clear Creek. Oh my god! And then it quotes it quotes Heart of Darkness at the end. It does. Yeah, yeah. It's it's all about like. Like, seeing his heart of darkness is all about seeing the inner, like, evil of humanity. That's what that was, that was about. <laughs> you never told me that. No, I don't know. Right? That's amazing. I need to reread it now. I still have a copy, by the way, Jonathan. Yeah. Okay, that's good. It's still out there in the world. It's, mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not in the book, Fade to Lack. Fade to Lack does not have that, but maybe when, we do the, maybe when we do the extended version, we'll put in a bunch of stupid shit like that. I think that would be the best idea ever. Okay. Well, anyway... Shannon is an artist. She's also a writer like me. She writes, although she writes a lot of fiction yes. and short stories. She's working on a novel, mm-hmm. a novel called Red Letter Day. Yes. yes. It's hellish right now. That's <laughs> how Very it goes. hard. But you're working on that. You do a lot of drawings and, and all, all sorts of visual arts. Yes. Yes. I've been getting a little bit more into graphic design. As you can see, I've taken up this cover thing with Jonathan. Um, I think it's something that I would really like to do for maybe a future career or something. I really enjoy cover designs in particular because there's so much to say with a book and, you know, the cover can just mean so much. Yeah. And this is what, this is why I I brought Shannon onto the project. In fact, she was one of the first people, you know, outside like my family I told about this. In fact, you were the first person I told because I started the book, putting it together back in I want to say June 2012, and I think I contacted you in like August because one of the things you do is you you just make a lot of book covers for fun. Yes. <laughs> and, and put them up on Facebook, and I see them on Facebook, and I'm like, damn, these are really good. And you put up all your illustrations, drawings, you have this sort of, I want to say almost like anime-infused style, but with, it's there's a lot of, I, that's kind of what I get out of it, but I'm not a visual artist. I mean, I don't know how to describe that. I try to stay away from the anime style okay. pretty Far away, actually. I apologize. <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, I take after Disney a lot, actually. That's actually, I think, a better description, yes. Yes, yes. Disney is a huge inspiration to me. The animation style is just beautiful, and I really hope to emulate that a bit in my art. <laughs> yeah. 
So, or, or also there's sort of this, um, when I've seen some of your artwork, this sort of pulp set sense to it sometimes. Yes. And that's, that's not a, a criticism. That's that there's this really, sometimes you can get something that's very, got a lot of personality. You can tell there's a story to it, something like that. That's kind of what I mean by pulpy. Yes, and, there's uh, a lot of energy from behind my art that I do. Most of my art actually is of the characters of the novel that he just talked about that I was working on. So, like I said, there's a huge story between or behind those guys, so... Yeah. I'm glad the emotion comes yeah. out. <laughs> right. So anyway, I saw this, saw the cover designs, and I'm like, well, what if we put those together, and that would make a really good cover for the book. And at the time, I did not think the book would have any interior illustrations, anything like that. I just knew, I look at most independently published books, and they look independently published because they have crappy covers. <laughs> because most of the independent publishing companies, they'll have you design your cover through like their online service, and it's like free, it's like put green they here. Do. And blue here. Yeah, that's like, That's awful. I mean, you can choose to put your own thing there. But it's like a lot of people don't do the effort. It's like, well, you're not going to sell a single copy if you don't have a cover that's really nice. No, and they say, don't judge a book by its cover. It's completely <laughs> yeah. not true. You, maybe you shouldn't, but people do. Yes. That's, that's ignoring reality if you think. Yeah. 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 No, but book on a shelf. It looks nice. You pick it up. That's what happens. Yeah. So I saw, you know, Shannon... Really good at this. We're friends, so you know I don't have to like you know meet someone new or talk to someone new because that's the worst. And always <laughs> no. the worst meeting new people. <laughs> yeah, no, but so so anyway, so that's that's kind of where this came down to. And our so we're just going to do a little history here. The first thing I think I pitched because basically this whole process over the last couple months of the book was me giving Shannon really poorly worded ideas, <laughs> and she would try to translate that and then bring me back something awesome. And I was like, oh, I can't believe you got that out of my gibberish I gave you. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Oh, wow. That's fun. <laughs> but anyway, so I think the first ideas were that the cover would, I mean, the final cover, you, you've, you've, if you're listening to the podcast, hopefully you've looked it up. It's, you know, it's online. You can see it in all sorts of places. It'll be with this podcast episode's, you know, show notes and stuff on We Got This Covered. You can look at the pictures. And it's, it's a film strip with this interesting sort of, like, texture behind it. Um, I don't know. How do you describe that texture? It's like distressed paper almost. I got it online from this really lovely person through this art website called DeviantArt, and what he does is he takes pictures of textures that he thinks are interesting, and he puts them online, and they're free to use. So, that guy, I owe a lot to. He's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's sort of what the final one looks like, and I think everyone who's seen it, and, and as soon as Shannon and I, Shannon made it and I looked at it, I think we agreed this was the right cover. It looks really good, really sharp. Gets the point of the book across, but is not sort of overbearing. Yeah, and funny enough, I actually did like maybe two covers for you before doing this one. That's what I was going to say, because <laughs> my initial ideas I was pitching you were totally too elaborate. I was like, I was like, all right, I want a big illustration, so you'll have me on the cover, so I would send you a picture, you'd do like a drawing of me, and like, I will have a film projector behind it or something. And, and we did a couple of those, at least two. Yes. And, and I know the first one that we got the full drawing, it didn't make it to like a full cover stage. Um, at least that I saw. I know you were tinkering with it. Right, yeah. It was being difficult with the colors and everything. Anyway, that drawing you can actually see on the back cover of the book and as the illustration to part one uh, in, in sort of a... It, on the back cover, it's sort of in a sepia kind of tone. In part one, it's obviously in black and white. The interior does not have color. Um, but anyway, so that's one. That's a great drawing, but I think Shannon correctly noted at a certain point, it's not necessarily a great cover because it's a lot of visual information on the cover that's maybe a little too much for how you sell the book. Yeah, composition-wise, it was really difficult to text wrap, I think. Mm -hmm. And then just, I made this 
the final cover, actually, just for fun. It took me about five minutes. Yes, and <laughs> that's what was so funny about it is it literally was, she just sent me one day, like, you know, she actually sent me two versions of the cover, one with a different illustration that is not in the book, but we can hopefully put up online. It's me sort of in front of a film strip, and uh, and I liked that one, and then she's like, all right, and here's this other one. I just kind of did it as a, as a laugh, and I'm like, sorry, Shannon, I'm sorry I made you do all this other work, but we should do that as the cover, and I felt horrible. Oh, it wasn't bad, you know, it was yeah. fun to kind of play around with cover ideas, because I just really wasn't liking what was coming out composition-wise, like I said, with the other picture, but... I guess pictures with more graphics I do better with rather than picture or covers with like characters on them. I don't know why. Yeah. It just happened. <laughs> yeah, and I mean it, it happened, it was good and obviously I think one of the best things about it is it had this really compelling texture that is not overbearing, but it's very visually intriguing that we could easily wrap around later on and make the whole book cover, you know, back, spine, everything uniform. And that's basically what we were finally able to do. And um, so I think when we looked at the, the cover, I, I think, you know, I, I really liked it, liked what Shannon had been doing, but I realized, you know, this front cover release was not incorporating any of the artwork I had had her do. So I'm like, well, let's at least put one of those on the back, and that's what we ultimately did. But I also looked at the, when I was designing the interior of the book, which I did all basically by hand on, the, on Microsoft Word, I, uh, I realized this needs something to punch it up. The book is split into five parts, and then it's got some other little headings, and I thought they could use illustrations. And Shannon, when she would send me the preliminary artwork, obviously was just in sketch form. And I really liked that. And I'm like, well, maybe we could do some sketches for the interior of the book. And that's when, that's when this got much more complicated. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, the graphics of the sketches, I guess, or not the graphics, the uh, quality of the sketches weren't up to par. So that was... Well, that was, it was, that was just a scanning thing, is then... <laughs> Because Shannon's scanner she has is not like, you know... a, a prof- sucks. Yeah, okay. I didn't want to be mean. <laughs> no, it but, really does. Yeah. So it was enough to, like, swap the images back and forth for proofs and things like that. But when we actually came down to put them in the book, we needed them at 300 DPI. So I just, you know, I just came down and picked them up. We scanned them at uh, the FedEx office, and they were able to do it for us. And from that point on, it was fine. But I, I really want to talk more about sort of the process of doing these little illustrations, because that's what people, I think, artistically, there's a lot of that scattered throughout the book, and I think that's good because it gives... This, you know, film is visual, gives a little visual emphasis every hundred pages or so. So, and I, I think I just, I kind of gave you pretty much free reign on that. This was one of those things where I kind of babbled and I'm like, you could do this and this and this, but you kind of figured out what was best. Because I'm just like, like trinkets that have something to do with film, so. Yeah, no, I, those were really fun, just practice-wise. Because I can't really, like, pull images like that out of my ass. <laughs> I had to look up reference pictures, but from there it was really easy and fun to try and play around with the little, the strokes and everything, the sketches. So. Yeah, so part two, and, you know, when the book comes out, I'm excited for everyone to be able to get a copy and see this stuff, because it's really fun. Part two has a, an old-timey sort of reel-to-reel projector that, you know, films back in my day were projected in. Now we've got these digital <laughs> projectors, which would be really boring to draw. Yeah, uh, I, when I was shifting through Google looking for these reference pictures, I came across like those these new ones, and I'm just like, those are so ugly. They're just a block. Why do we have those? Yeah. Anyway, so that's good. That's there, which is great because I mean, I, I talk many times in the book about my love of 35 millimeter film, so that's very fitting. Part two is really long, so you get through part two, you come out on part three. This has a, a camera, and it's. It's interesting. I just said camera. I didn't think anything beyond that. Shannon gave me this one that's this sort of, again, it's sort of an old-timey camera. It's very old-timey. Yeah. Do you want to describe what it's like? It's like 
I don't know what any of the things are called. Yeah. You'll know when you see it. It looks like one of the old ones. Like that, It's obviously not a film camera. You would just take still pictures with this. But that's kind of the fun of it. It has like the, um, what do you call the this? Sh- the accordion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Part. That's the word. The accordion. Folds. Fold. Yeah, that's that. <laughs> yeah. So that's part three. And again, you know, with Sean on the podcast, we're talking about what's in each of these parts of the book that you can expect. Um, part four is actually my favorite little like part illustration of the book. It's because this is the special feature articles. We're talking about things like Harry Potter, Twilight, and the Hunger Games, and they're all books turned into movies. So we have uh, some books and a little film canister, and the film canister's film is, is leaking out, which means that's probably destroyed. I'm kidding. Because, <laughs> see, the film's just, like, trailing out. It's, like, oh, it's yes. not properly stored. <laughs> but it would, be, it would be a very boring image if it was, so that's okay. I really love this picture. I like it, too. It was yeah. fun, the book yeah. pages. Yep. Yeah, it's good. It's good stuff. So, yeah, that's good. And then part five, we finish up. Actually, there's, there's more to it than that, but well, let's, let's see what's on part five. Because I have forgotten. Because I'm so stressed out about this book, I'm just a mess. Oh, part five is the speeches and supplemental writing section. And so we have a podium. And I really like that one. Yeah, I like that one too. Yeah. I was having a lot of fun with yeah. that one. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, the thing is, it's all sort of references from things in the book. But I like that they're, I like the idea of doing sketches. I actually got this idea from a Hayao Miyazaki book I have. It's a book of his essays, and he opens each part with a sketch of his own. I can't draw, so I had Shannon do it. But these sketches, they're sort of like everyday objects, but in this very, you know, sort of sketchy, stylized form, and I really like that. I'm glad you do. Yeah. Good. Yay. So anyway, they all turn out, they all look really good in the book. The appendices, I realized that we had this extra section with appendices, and I'm like, that shouldn't just be blank. So I'm like, Shannon, draw, draw a notebook. And you did. I like the notebook. Yay. Yay. So, and then we've got some extra illustrations. I didn't mention part one which is my favorite films. That was one where we went back and forth on what art to do. In fact, this is an interesting story. The one you did specifically for part one, we wound up putting on the spine. Yes, the one with you in the 3D glasses. <laughs> yeah, describe that one. Well, <laughs> it's Jonathan wearing 3D glasses and eating popcorn, and we're in like a little retro popcorn box, and yeah. my signature's in the popcorn box in there, actually. Yeah, you can kind of see. It's a very high resolution on the spine, so that's good. You can see that. It looks good. Yep. And it's ironic because I despise 3D and I don't like popcorn. (laughs) That's why you look so unhappy in that picture. (laughs) So I like that one. Part one is the image you'll find on the back. It's me with the film projector. I really like that. It looks very good on black and white inside. But as we said, it was originally done in color, so we can hopefully find that, put it online sometime after the book's out. Color is kind of a piece of crap. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, and then my one of the illustrations I think is very special, and I want to tell people about before the book comes out is that um, you know this book was originally actually set to come out last year was my plan, and I was not able to complete it because my father passed away uh, last October, and um, so the book wound up having a lot more sort of about him in it in its final version. So it opens with this little dedication, and then I was like, Shannon, why don't you sketch my dad? And then I, you know, I was like. I didn't realize when I got that back, I was going to cry like a baby. You because, did? Oh, oh I was Jonathan. teared up. And then I showed it to, you know, when I showed it to my mom, she teared up. And when I showed it to my brother, he teared up. Oh so my god, you, I'm so sorry about you made my whole, It's It's okay. I, I commissioned you to do this. It's my fault. But, anyway, you will, that's what's great about this, is like, on the page before the table of contents, there's a drawing, and I divide, decided to just put it on the whole page. It was going to be like split with a dedication, but I thought that wasn't, it's such a good drawing. And it's just oh, a little it's just a little portrait of my dad. I gave her the picture, she sketched it, and it looked really nice, and so he's in the book and you can see what my dad looked like. I really like that. 
So that's one of my favorite parts of the book. Brought back a lot of memories in drawing that, but I won't make you cry, so I won't talk about that. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> make can... myself cry, too. <laughs> I know. But it's, it's, it's good. We love it. Um, so those are sort of all the illustrations you'll find in the book. They're all black and white sketches. They're really nice. Um, you know, cheaper than printing color pages. <laughs> Just kidding. But I also, like, I also like sort of black and white sketches. It fits better with what the book's about, I think. Me too. It's a little yeah. more classic. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, the cover is the main thing here that most people are going to see when they buy it. Obviously, the front cover will be used when you buy it online, the Kindle edition, all of that. And uh, if you actually buy the whole thing, there's your nice, nice spine, a nice back cover, all the things you expect from a book. <laughs> no. But I just wanted to talk to Shannon here because we're really happy with how this turned out. Yes, we are. Incredibly. Yeah. So, and people, you know, I've been showing the book off to people in school and in other places because I'm like, holy crap, I have a book. <laughs> and, uh, and people really love the cover. People are drawn into it, in by it. And I think it, it takes attention away from the horrible pun in the book's title. Horrible pun. <laughs> I think it's good. I okay, like it. I know. When well, I told my friends about it, they were like, fade to lack. I see what you did there. Yeah. That's... <laughs> I didn't do anything. It's <laughs> Yep. Well, anyway, Shannon, you want to tell people where they can maybe go online, look at your art if they want to? I actually have a DeviantArt page <laughs> if you care to look at it. It's just, like I said, most of it is drawings of my characters and little book covers that I do for my book. Um, it's mzy le rouge, you know, the French, .deviantart.com. I'm sure Jonathan will maybe put something up on his website, so you know, we got have this... to interpret that. Yeah, on the show <laughs> notes. to say out loud. Yeah, the, the link will be on the show notes on We Got This Covered, and then wherever else this podcast is coming out, so you can look at that. Cool. Thank you, Shannon, so much for your work on the book. Anything else to say before we go? Uh, not that I can think of. It was a pleasure doing this book. I hope yeah. to one day be in your shoes and publish <laughs> yep so that'll be great and then i can do the cover for your book and it'll be it'll be terrible it'll be like a stick figure with a flag, <laughs> flag. And, what the hell? and then i'll just kind of i'll just kind of scribble out in like really bad cursive the title of your book i think it's a plan i think we could go for minimalism now. okay yep <laughs> sounds like a plan avant-garde book well, all right thank you shannon thank you jonathan hope to talk to you again in the future All right, we are back. Um, still playing Persona music, but still not talking about Persona. Yeah. All right, instead, we are talking about... Okay, so Persona, great game. Always comes out cleanly, makes everyone happy. Yeah. You know, n nothing... You can't really say too many bad things about what happens when, you know, Persona games come out. But, Sean, there was a recent game release. Highly anticipated. So yeah. many people excited about it. Yes. And then it came out, and the world burned down. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it did. We are talking about the launch, or anti-launch, of the, the new SimCity yeah, game. crash, let's say. And the crash of SimCity by EA. And, yeah. Do we want to preface this by you going back to what you said a couple weeks ago on our PS4 podcast about how EA is making everyone hate them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, exactly. The EA has, over the... I just want to say, like, the first time it started getting really big is when they uh, purchased Bioware... And sort of they started doing stuff, I think, like Dragon Age 2, when that came out, they sort of, by all accounts, uh, EA forced Bioware to push that game out before it was ready. That was like the start, and now EA has just been like, 
crashing with, you know, people who really didn't like Dead Space 3, people don't like their policies of, like, microtransactions and stuff like that, people really hate their Origin service that's sort of competing with Steam, although I don't think Origin is bad at all, but that's part of just the EA hate. But now, like, the crowning achievement <laughs> is that SimCity, which is a franchise that people really, really like, I've never really played SimCity games all that much, I've not, like, I haven't played any of the Sims games all that much, I've played, like, pieces of them here and there. Same and, here. Yeah, but I know a lot of people really like the SimCity games, and they haven't, I think... The last one that came out was SimCity 2000, something like that. It's been a while, at the very least, since there was a new SimCity game. So everyone was really excited for the gritty reboot, because it's just called SimCity. I love that. So everyone was really excited for this game to come out. But people were sort of cautious, because there was a lot of news about how it was going to be always online, and SimCity has been traditionally a single-player-only experience, but they're, they're by like creating this online component with the new SimCity... EA is saying you have to be online, you're playing on our servers, it's like this always connected experience, and they've really changed up some elements of the gameplay that I won't get into because I don't know that much about SimCity, but the long and short of it is that you always have to be connected to their servers to be able to play this game that fans of this franchise have only played this game single player, where obviously you don't need to be connected online at all, and they were not prepared at all for the massive amount of uh, purchases of this game and the massive amount of users that were going to be on their servers. And so, basically, this game that everybody was really excited for, and by all accounts is a pretty good SimCity game if there are some flaws here or there, nobody's really able to play it because if you want to play this, what is basically a single-player game, you have to wait about in an hour of server queues. And even if you do manage to get a spot on the server... Uh, chances are it's going to kick you off pretty soon because yeah. the servers not only are there so many people trying to get into them but the servers apparently are incredibly unstable so impossible to get into a game if you do manage to get into a game it's going to kick you the fuck out and here is the real just what makes this this like a historically strange launch is that okay game comes out terrible server stuff all that that would be easier to process if the game were a piece of shit yeah. but people love this game yeah yeah the people who were able to play it, which is really just critics. Yeah, who we were able to, you know, play it a couple of weeks before it came out on yeah. their, like, EA's test servers. Yeah. Basically, those people who said, like, like Kotaku, for instance, had a couple of good articles on this where before it came out, they posted an article explaining how much they loved it, and then immediately had to start, like, scrambling because it was like, yeah. well, what do we say now? And they had to redo their review and say, you cannot, we cannot recommend this under any circumstances. IGN had to do the same thing. Yeah. And it's just... I think people are even scrambling to figure out how to cover this because this is such a strange experience where people are spewing all this vitriol at EA and the game and all this, but it's for a game that they want to play so badly because it's good. Yeah, and that's what's yeah. so weird about this. It, it, it is really bizarre because it is sort of bringing to light... Because, because traditionally, the only games that have required this... There are like a few of them that are doing it now, like Diablo 3, that require this always online connectivity but don't necessarily need it strictly for the gameplay. But traditionally... Uh, MMOs like World of Warcraft need to have this thing because, you know, it's an MMO, it is an online-only game, that is the whole point of the game. And so you usually see these sorts of launches only for MMOs, and so MMOs have never had a traditional review structure, because one, because of that, and two, because of like the massive size of those games. So you never had this issue of creating these reviews for this product that is completely contingent on the uh you know the company that is making it to have keep the servers updated and to, to make it work on their end and 
and you have no hand in it. So now having SimCity, which is this sort of traditional game doing this, people are putting out reviews and then having to redact their scores for it because they did not... The, obviously, the the people did not know what the conditions were going to be at launch, and I think the most interesting one of those is the, the website called Polygon had a review out that I believe their initial score for the game was like 9.5. At the very least, it was in the 9 range, so it was really, really positive, and then once the game launched and they saw all the server issues, they kicked that score down to an 8.0, which that's really interesting that you have to scroll down to this review, and then you get this like redacted like like extra paragraph, and then it says, it's like, no, now it's an 8. Well, that's interesting. And then, eventually, in response, EA did something that this is the most amazing thing about this whole process, is that EA had, like, to respond to that, I guess to try to make their servers uh, work better, so I I don't know how this process works, I'm not some sort of, you know, tech-savvy kind of guy in that sense, but apparently they stripped out uh, some features of the game to try to get the, uh, the servers to run better so people, you know, could get into the game and actually fucking play it. And one of the key features they stripped out was basically being able to fast-forward the time of the game. And if you've ever played a game like SimCity... For five minutes. If you yeah, play yeah. it for, like, a... Se- I've never played much SimCity, and I know this is important from playing it for, like, a minute. Yeah, is that, you know, you in a game like SimCity, with, like, these management games, there's a significant amount of downtime where nothing is happening. You know, you, like, you know, you build your buildings, you update your infrastructure, you do all that stuff, and you have to wait for, like, new stuff to occur so that then you can handle it. And it's really fucking boring to wait for that kind of stuff in real time. So all these games have a fast-forward feature. And so to make the servers work better, they stripped out this fast-forward feature, which then completely defeats the point of playing the game, which prompted the Polygon Review to then kick it down to a 4.0, which is incredible that you can see this game have a 9.5 score, then eventually get kicked down to a 4.0 because they stripped out one feature. And stripping up that one feature... Is it's like such a critical part of playing that game that if you tried to play that without it, you'd you'd pull your fucking hair out. Yeah, and 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 then the the cherry on top of that is that apparently that didn't even really help because no. there are still massive server issues and nobody could play the game. And we're not even we've barely even scratched the surface yet. I mean, yeah. even before just the issues of playing the game when it came out. People had so much trouble just downloading it because they didn't do any kind of yeah like, preloading system. yeah that yeah which is sort of really common nowadays. Yeah. You expect you to be able to preload a game yeah, and they didn't do anything like that. And couple that with their server issues, that just fucked everyone. Yeah, um, they're not offering any sort of refunds for the game, which is that is a huge dick move because yeah. it's like you bought a product and they're not fulfilling their end of the contract. You're yeah. not you are not able to play the game. I think that's a pretty basic business transaction. You are yeah. sold something. I definitely agree. You should be expected to use it in the way it is advertised or at least intended. Yeah. And none of that is available and they won't do refunds. Now they have since come out and said they will give everyone who bought it and couldn't play it a free game on Origin, but whoop de fucking do. I mean that's yeah. that's not that's, and that's also kind of a business move on their part, uh-huh. too, because a huge part, point of having services like Origin or Steam is to get people simply onto that service, because once you're on that service, you're going to you're most likely to use that service more and more and more. That's like why Steam made Team Fortress 2 free-to-play, is yeah. once you play the game, it's like, then you see, oh, there's all this other stuff on the store. So really, that is, it seems nice, but it's more... I don't know. With all the stuff EA has been doing, it makes it really easy to be really cynical and just look at the business side of things with them. Well, because here's the thing. You're not going to be able to ever buy a fucking EA game now and have it be actually free because you get in there and there will be, you know, 
eight pieces of DLC you yeah. need to play the game, and they all cost ten dollars. You know? Yeah, there's all this stuff where they were talking about. I think the the it was the chief financial officer of EA, and I think he has since redacted this statement. But he did say that all of their games are going to have microtransactions in them, which is you know horrible. Yeah, maybe they won't do that since they saw that nobody likes the idea of paying $60 for a game and then having the game constantly pester you like it's a free-to-play game to buy, like, a $2 hats and shit like that. Nobody, nobody wants that. No, EA is kind of... And then there was this great statement that came out, I believe, yesterday um, from when we are recording this that, like, it was, like, a, maybe a marketing executive at EA saying something like, well, you know, we really... We had everything prepared for the SimCity launch, but we just... People were playing the game too much. They had too much fun with it. <laughs> It's like, no, you guys weren't prepared. Yeah, fuck yeah. you. Yeah, this is because nobody, nobody was able to play the game. Yeah. The only people who were able to play the game are the people who reviewed them before the game came out. And then all those critics have talked about, you know, now they they can't play the game anymore. And obviously, part of the experience of a game like this is you follow up on it, and yeah. maybe you do a review in progress or something. No one can do that. Yeah. Um, they had to pull, they, they told all of their people marketing the game to just stop, like all the marketing agencies they worked with. They had them pull yeah. down all ads, get rid of all advertising. It's just, it's like they are in crisis mode. Yeah, I want to say Amazon.com stopped selling digital downloads for the yeah. game, or at least they put up a warning for it. I can look that, at that. Yeah, Let me look that, that up right now. not anymore, but I definitely saw that at one point. Speaking of which, you can buy my book on Amazon. I forgot to mention that. Anyway, but let's look this SimCity up. So, uh, standard, yeah, SimCity da- Standard Edition download. Um, it does not have a warning right now, but hmm, that's interesting. Although it does have, well, go, back, go back to the score. One like, star, like, cust- out of 3,000 customer reviews, 2,852 of them are one holy star. Holy shit, I have never, never seen, seen, on Amazon, I have never seen something like that. That's like Metacritic type yeah. trolling bullshit. Oh, wow, yeah. yeah. That's that. That shows you how mad people are about this. Yeah, because there's no coming back from that. Yeah, no. This this game's dead in the water at this point. Like, I can't yeah. imagine even if they do get the server issues fixed, it's so fucked at this point. Like, well, the whole even, situation is fucked. And they even said there's they would take significant reengineering to make it an uh, offline game. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, they're not going to be able to fix that part of it at all because they they designed it from the ground up to be like that. Yeah. So, so I mean. What can they? What can they even do, Sean? Like, I, I mean, theoretically, to fix the situation. I mean, you know, just fix the servers. I mean, eventually the servers will fix themselves because just nobody will try to play the game anymore. Yeah, like yeah. that is that is what is going to happen, and then it's not going to be a problem. But they're, you know, nobody is going to keep on buying this game. Yeah. Like a month from now, I think there's just it, there's nothing they can do at this point other than wait six years and make another SimCity game, reboot it again, just call it SimCity. You just ignore that this game ever existed. So it's going to be, I mean, and if people who love these kinds of games, and, and, you know, critics who love these kinds of games, we're talking about it, that it's kind of a, could be a masterpiece of this genre. Yeah. It's going to be totally lost now. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really baffling. And it's sort of coupled with something that happened like a month ago that we didn't talk about on the podcast either, but I sort of just feel like, it's cast, it's cast this weird atmosphere over gaming right now, where about a month or like a month and a half ago, a game called Aliens Colonial Marines came out. That that game had was everybody was really excited for that game because all the gameplay demos at E3 and stuff like that were really exciting and looked really awesome. And then the game actually came out, and everybody quickly realized 
Nothing in those gameplay demos is in this game. The graphics in the gameplay demos were far better than is in the game. The AI protocols you could see in the gameplay demo were far better than was in the actual game. The like sequences were far more dynamic. Everything in the gameplay demos that were awesome were not in the actual game, which is fucking amazing because you expect the game is going to be better than the demo they showed two years before the game comes out. Yeah. So that basically made everybody sort of stand up. The, uh, the company that made uh, Aliens Colonial Marines was Gearbox Software. And everybody got really, really mad at Gearbox Software for what is blatant false advertising in, yeah. in a really disgusting way, like creating this promise of something. It's borderline fraud. It's, yeah, I mean, it really is. And so, and so that casts this weird poll where everyone was like, all of a sudden, like, extremely suspicious of gaming companies because nothing like that has really happened before. There's been, you know, examples of false advertising, but that tends to be behind trailers and stuff like that where there's always, like, a little thing that says, like, you know, not actually gameplay footage and stuff like that. These were purported to be actual gameplay demos. You know, you had Randy Pitchford, the uh, CEO of Gearbox, up there just straight up saying this is, like, we are actually running this game it's like, you know, the same way they do all gameplay demos of these kinds of things, that is clearly not the case. They clearly, either those were pre-rendered videos, or they very specifically made this small build and put all their energy into making that build and then decided, fuck the actual game. And so that created this weird atmosphere, and now SimCity comes out, and it's even more disastrous than that, because nobody's even able to play the game, regardless if it's good or not. It's, it's weird. It feels weird being a gamer right now, because and there's all this... Suspicion and cynicism, where you're like gamers are already a pretty cynical bunch of people, and they're a pretty savvy bunch of people. Yeah, too. exactly. And so piling all this on is just like it makes you hate the world just a little bit more than you really should, I guess. And I think this is where this discussion has to go: is do you think this new atmosphere and the massive fallout from these two disasters will make the game industry look at these issues of something that Alien Colonial Marines now, you know, very much epitomizes of these, you know, false advertising in gaming, these demos that are, you know, better. Obviously, this is the high, yeah. most heightened example yeah. ever, but this is something that happens. Yeah. And it's the same with SimCity, obviously, is this DRM bullshit yeah. that they keep pushing, this online-only bullshit, all this kind of stuff that they're just trying to take all control away from gamers. Do you think these two things will have to be addressed for people I, to trust? I, I hope so. I think definitely the Aliens Colonial Marines thing is going to at least get the gaming press is going to sit is, is sitting up and taking a look at what happened with that. There are a lot of websites that are basically just deciding not to do previews anymore because yeah. because of stuff like that because they realize they're based they were effectively being lied to. And so they're, they're, they don't want to do that because, you know, the gaming press was being lied to and they in turn, not understanding it, were lying to their readers. And so yeah. that's, you know, that's a really horrible situation. And, so. that's, and I think that underlines something that I've always kind of thought about gaming previews sometimes is they always kind of make me wonder because you always get the writers on these gaming previews kind of giving opinions and talking about how, like, oh, this looks so great. Yeah. And I always have to think, it's like... That's just, I, I, I don't know if I would make an opinion-based statement like that that far out from a game launch. Yeah, and then you also have to understand this, like, they don't, to be fair, like, those, like, because the builds of those games that they play, whatever game it is, it's not going to be very good just because it's not right. going to be polished. So they don't understand what the game is going to be like when they have those previews. And it is a really weird thing, because you don't get that in, like, anything else, you know? No. There's not, you don't get this, like, for, like, book reviews or something, someone gets to read two chapters ahead of time and be like, oh, this whole book's going to be fantastic, kind yeah. of thing. That doesn't happen. So, yeah, no. hopefully game previews, I mean, I don't read game previews anymore just because it does feel like, it, it just feels like marketing. And, yeah, and that, that is too. what it is, and I think the gaming press is really realizing we are just being used by their marketing division 
to you know market this game for them, and that's not okay. We shouldn't be doing that. I mean, it, it definitely underlines that gaming and and the, the gaming press and the gaming industry has maybe one of the closest relationships. I mean, even more so than maybe movies and movie press in terms yeah. of they are in many cases just a marketing outlet, and they don't need to be. There's a lot of great gaming writers out yeah, there. Yeah, definitely. And gaming press outlets, and I think, yeah, like you said, Alien Colonial Marines was just one of those moments of getting slapped in the face and sitting up and saying, what the fuck? Yeah. And then, then now the other side of the coin is that because this DRM thing has been building up for a while, particularly, like, you know, really motivated by piracy where... Yeah, sort of bullshit, like, you know, you have to buy the game new to get this, like, code to play the multiplayer or whatever, and if you don't, you have to pay 15 bucks, which is, I'm fine with most of the time, but it creates these, like, dumb situations where, you know, maybe if I play it on another Xbox or something, like, that code just does not transfer over, and so I can only play multiplayer on, like, the Xbox I downloaded onto, that kind of thing. Hopefully, and then, yeah, and obviously the extreme example is something like Diablo 3 or SimCity, where their form of DRM is just to have it always online, which is particularly shitty because people who pirate those games can pirate those games and effectively just play them offline. It's like you, there are actually workarounds for that kind of thing. I know there are yeah. lots of you know people who pirate Diablo three are able to play that game offline, and that's sort of the story of DRM is that the the most effective way to combat piracy is to just make it easier not to pirate. It's like Steam, have yeah, a service exactly. that if, just if you yeah. can get the games at a reasonable price with little hassle. That's the, everybody's going to go that way. That is why Steam works so well. Well, that's why music piracy is such a, a smaller issue now than it ever has been. Yeah, because, because iTunes is yeah. just, it's so much easier just to, you know, pay like 12 bucks for the album you want. Hit a, click a, it right there. Click a button and have it on every device in the world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Instead of, you know, trying going onto Pirate Bay and risk, yeah. you know, bricking your computer because you download some horrible malware or something. Right. Yeah. So hopefully everybody's going to take a look at the SimCity thing and be like, we can't do this always online bullshit. At the very least, there has to be an offline mode for anything that does not absolutely require an internet connection, like something yeah. that is an MMO. Right. That's like, luckily there aren't a lot of games on the horizon that I'm aware of that are doing stuff like this. I think uh, Diablo Three and SimCity were sort of the two test cases from both Activision and EA. So hopefully they're going to be like because because that was one of the things where people Diablo Three did sell really well. But it got horrible world word of mouth to the point where I don't even want to play Diablo 3 because I've heard so many people talking about what they don't like about that game, and a lot of it is motivated by, one, I don't want to play Diablo 3 online. I never played the other Diablo games online. So, yeah, yeah there's always online stuff. Hopefully that has to stop. Yeah, I mean, this... I mean, they've seen, you know, SimCity is burning to the fucking ground. So yeah. hopefully it has to stop. Here. Not just one of them either. Everyone SimCities. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what's next? Are they going to fucking destroy Roller Coaster Tycoon? Are they going to, like, resurrect that franchise and just destroy that too? <sighs> you and the, and the loading screen will just be, like, Roller Coasters careening and everyone inside <laughs> of dying? Well, to be fair, that's what I always did when I played right. Roller Coaster Tycoon. Yeah. So that wouldn't be so bad. No. <laughs> Make it super graphic. Like, the, yeah. literally a new gritty reboot of Roller Coaster Tycoon. Yeah, just Roller Coaster Tycoon. There's blood and gore everywhere. Yeah. The horrible screams. It's like the Sopranos font where the R's are guns. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It'd be great. But, yeah, I guess, is there anything else to say about the SimCity disaster? Uh, don't buy SimCity Sim for the love of God. Yeah. You will not be able to play it if you buy it. And I, I really do want to go back to, I cannot believe. Okay, I can believe because they're money-grubbing bastards, but I cannot believe they will not give refunds. That is yeah, bullshit. That is, that is pretty messed up. They could 
they could fix so much of their public image just by saying, yeah, you can't play the game, here's your money back, because you gave us money and got nothing. Yeah. they. I mean, that's theft at a certain point. That's yeah. just... It's, it's really frustrating, too, because, you know, online, the hate for EA is really exaggerated. It is super over-the-top, and so a lot of times I, I try to be level-headed about it, and I'm sort of like, you know, let's give EA a chance. Like, you... you it's a it's a corporation like it's you, you like can't like just blame everything on EA. But every time I feel like I just try to defend them a little bit, it then turns I turn around and it's like, what the fuck did you guys do? You've got to be. It's been five years and you're still pulling this bullshit. Like, come on, guys, figure it the fuck out. Yeah, and I mean, and I I come from a place where a lot of the things you were describing, like having the codes in the box, so you have to like tie your game to one Xbox, yeah, stuff like that. All the day one DLC, I hate that shit. Yes. I can't stand it. I think it's ridiculous that you know I, I, you know, you have to if you play a game like Mass Effect Three, day it comes out, you have to pay another ten dollars on top of what you just paid to get your day one one yeah, DLC. Yeah, that's stupid, I and agree. it's and it's it just screws over developers. And I have to think. All these sort of developers working with EA have to be terrified right now. Terrified that yeah. this is going to... Because I feel really bad for the people who made this SimCity game. Yeah, Maxis. Who, who poured years of their lives into making what they obviously thought was you know, a great SimCity game, and then these corporate policies they had to implement destroy their vision, yeah. and you know that could happen next to anyone under EA's banner. It could happen yeah. next to BioWare, anybody. Yeah, because it is... At the end of the day, it is EA's responsibility to run those servers and to gauge that side of the business, and they yeah. they failed to do that in a huge way with this with this launch. So, boy, it's just yeah, it's a weird weird time to be a gamer because it's also because you also have all this optimism around the new next gen consoles coming out, and then you look at SimCity collapsing to the ground, and you're like, uh, yeah. I, I I hope things turn out okay for everything else. I know it's it's bad. So, all right. <laughs> Let's, let's keep this anger train rolling. Yeah. I want to talk about the movies of 2013 so far. So I, uh, you know, as you know, I review movies. We got this covered. and you uh, yes, oh, I have no idea. I, I do indeed. And basically, you know, uh, this has been a slow year for movies so far. But even, even like, accepting that it's usually a slow year for movies this time of year, where, you know, January, February, March, even into April, sometimes you don't get a lot of good stuff. This has been one of the most boring stretches in my ten years. This is actually my like my tenth year reviewing movies. This has been one of the just most painfully boring stretches of movie reviewing I've ever had. There's just a lot of movies where I'm I'm pushing stuff off left and right onto other writers that we got this covered. I'm sorry, guys, but I I can't go see shitty horror movies like Dark Skies. I just can't do it. And it, it just there's a certain point where it just becomes very, very annoying. And I think the perfect sort of graphic for this is if you go to Rotten Tomatoes. Now, now I'm reading this on Sunday, and they have last week's top box office, but this week's top box office is not very different. I've, I, the, the preliminary numbers are out. Uh, you know, Oz the Great and Powerful, open to $80 million. We'll talk about that in a minute. That's, that's a lot of money. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I was really surprised to see yeah. it, was, it opened that huge. I was not surprised, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But last year's top ten, if you look at Rotten Tomatoes, nine of those are rotten reviews yeah. with one one fresh, and the fresh one is Silver Linings Playbook, which <laughs> opened last November. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was not. Yeah. Yeah, so pretty much everything that's come out in 2013 has been bad. It's bombed. It's I mean, I mean, Oz the Great and Powerful is a box office smash, runaway smash hit. It's a huge hit. 
but it's not a very good movie, and I think, I don't know, it's at 60% now, it was going kind of up and down, fluctuating. I mean, I gave it a good, I didn't give it a good review, I gave it a very mixed one with an ultimate recommendation, I think it's one of the more interesting films I've seen this yeah. year so far, but not a not a very good one, and it's just, I can't even, again, I mean, just, just, just talking about the movies I've seen, you know, back in January, uh, one of the, the movies that came out was Gangster Squad, which was kind of a big release, because it was supposed to come out last September, they pushed it to January after the Aurora Theater shootings, because it had a scene set in a movie theater with a shootout. Yeah, it seems a smart thing to do, yeah. push that back. Yeah, so, and they actually reshot that whole scene, and it is painfully obvious where that where that was reshot. Just completely, completely obvious. But anyway, that was a movie that looked kind of good. Very disappointing. Not bad, but not very good either. That's kind of what a lot of these movies feel like. And um, and that kind of started to set the tone for 2013, I realized very early on, was I'm going to be seeing a lot of movies that have some potential that are no good whatsoever. So there's a movie like Stand Up Guys, which I may have mentioned on the podcast. The, yeah. the long-awaited team-up between Al Pacino and Christopher Walken, where they spend, I kid you not a half hour of the movie dealing with Al Pacino's flaccid cock. <laughs> I don't know how else to word that. He, They go to a brothel, he can't get it up, they have to go to a pharmacy and rob, rob Viagra, and then he goes and fucks a Russian hooker four times, and then and they, they make that very clear, he did it four times. Four times. In the span of about ten on-screen minutes. So, you know, take that as you will. Yeah. Um, and then they have to go around, and it's like, his, his, like, he took so much Viagra, his dick won't, like, deflate and so he has to go <laughs> to <laughs> deflate because then he has to go to the hospital and get, get it, it literally drained. yeah get it drained yeah so they and it just goes on and on and on they have that fucking juliana margulies there as the dick draining nurse who's also like their friend's daughter or something that's weird juliana margulies is better than that um side effects the new steven soderbergh movie that's my favorite film of the year so far that one was really good that's kind of the outlier here but that's because steven soderbergh he does whatever the fuck he wants to yeah. do, and it's usually fun, and they come out at all times of the year, so whatever. But then we had, in mid-February, just the, like, like ground zero of shitty movies was Beautiful Creatures, the new Twilight ripoff. And, I mean, it's Twilight. Yeah. That's it. It's in the South. Swap out witches for vampires and switch the genders, and you know that movie, except it's much, much much worse than anything in the Twilight verse. It is horrible, and it is one of the most hateful, spiteful, like, racist movies about the South I've ever seen. Like, where it clearly hates every single human being who lives in the South, and it wants you to know that. So, yeah. And it's like, I don't probably agree politically with a lot of people in the American South. I know they don't all think the Civil War was, like, like the wrong side won. Yeah. You know? I don't think that's what most people in the South think. Yeah. And then that same day, we got A Good Day to Die Hard, which gave gave the franchise a, a very hard death, because that was a terrible piece of no, shit movie. John, no, Bruce Willis, totally, they're totally going to make another one. It was, it made money. It was kind of a, kind of a hit. Made some money. It's still in the top ten, I believe, box office-wise. So, who knows? They could very well make another one. I will not be seeing it. They could cast every actor I love on the planet in it. I still would not see it. This, this Good Day to Die Hard was just painfully what awful. If, what if David Lynch directed it? Okay, that'd be, that'd be really interesting. Would you see it? Yes. Okay, okay. there we go. I just so there are some conditions. Because <laughs> I, if David Lynch directed the next Die Hard movie, I'd love to go see that. Yeah. That'd be awesome. <laughs> I don't know what it would, the fuck it would be, but it'd be awesome. On the condition that David Lynch also plays the villain. <laughs> I would want that. That would be yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. If only Dennis Hopper were still alive, 
So he could do a Blue Velvet reunion, make Dennis Hopper the villain? That would actually be really, really great. Yeah. And and see, this is the only way to talk about A Good Day to Die Hard, is to talk about other ideas for better Die Hard movies. Because this one, like, nothing about it is in any way, shape, or form similar to any of the other Die Hard movies. And we are talking about a series with no identity whatsoever. It's just Bruce Willis kicks ass. That's kind of the movies. And but they're all yeah. you, you can still recognize each of the four as diehard movies. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And this one is just John McClane goes to Russia and becomes a sociopath. I mean, there's literally a scene where he and his son they have their they they've like escaped the bad guys. They can go home if they want, and they could like you know call the military because his son is a member of the CI fucking A. They call the military and be like, hey, you guys take care of this. But instead, John McClane's like, no, they fucked us over. We're going to kill every last one of these bad guys. We're going to do it. And it is so disturbing because at no... Like, John McClane kills people yeah. sometimes without... Yeah, but he doesn't... Like, he's not out for blood, you know? No. Like, he's not He's not doing it because he enjoys it. He's doing it yeah. it's like he has to. But in A Good Day to Die Hard, he is a... a bl- bloodthirsty motherfucker. And it so is. it's like, it's a realistic Die Hard movie, like what this dude would actually be like if he had killed all these people and been through all these situations and sort of like come out, you know, okay. I mean, and in the first 20 minutes there's this like, not in the first 20 minutes because the car chase is like a half hour long. There's this massive car chase where John McClane gets in like a giant tank kind of truck kind of thing and he's running through the streets of Moscow chasing down his son who's in another car because he wants his son to talk to him. So instead of just going and finding his son, he, like, runs him down in the street, and he's got, he's, like, just hitting cars left and right, throwing Russian people off the road. He's just killing dozens of innocent people. It's incredible. And this and this is another movie that's just racist. It hates Russian people. It's amazing. It's like, it was, it's like someone pulled the director out of the Cold War and had him, like, we, we unfroze a Cold yeah. War-era director and had him make a movie now. I was like, guys, Russia is not like this. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's Cold War's over, guys. It's like, let's yeah. calm down. It's, we don't need to go on and on about Russian supernationalists or whatever. Yeah, and so, and then and there were a bunch of other boring movies in the interim. There was Identity Thief, which I did not see, but heard it was terrible, so that's why I did not see it. Uh, Jack the Giant Slayer, which I like Brian Singer. This is literally the only time... I can remember where the trailers were so bad that I refused to see the movie. Yeah. Oh my god. I, the, I, those trailers, like that that weird spree of movie screenings I had at the end of last year that we talked about on a podcast. This trailer was at every single one of those movies, and it drove me fucking insane. That trailer was terrible. Yeah. And and I mean, usually I am totally trailer agnostic. If there's a good trailer, I'll enjoy it, but bad yeah. trailers usually don't deter me. I'm just like, trailers, they're just, tra- whatever, they're marketing. Yeah. This was, I was like, I can't it's imagine. It's so bad. And, and that was the critical consensus, basically, is that this yeah. is not a, got some fine acting, it's got people like Ewan McGregor in it, you know, mm-hmm. you can't go wrong with Ewan McGregor, but not a, not a good movie on the whole. Um, they, 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 there was the, the like, latest in a string of teenagers getting drunk movies, 21 and over. I could not have been less interested in that. We have The Last Exorcism Part 2. I heard nothing about that. I did not know it was coming out until I looked at this website right now. <laughs> yeah, I was not aware. I forgot that there was even a movie called The Last Exorcism in the first place. I don't know how there's another part to The Last Exorcism. And we have to make fun for at least a minute of the new Nicholas Sparks movie, Safe Haven, which includes, and I'll show you the critical consensus on Rotten Tomatoes to prove that I'm not just making this up, it says, Safe Haven suffers from a ridiculous, ludicrous plot twist, making for a particularly ignominious uh, Nicholas Sparks adaptation, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, 
the I, uh, when Safe Haven came out, this is another one that I pawned off on another writer, and that was actually because I was busy that week. Not I, although I wouldn't. Have not because you're like I can't deal with this bullshit anymore. Yeah, I was not at that point yet. Let's yeah. say because this was before Die Hard. But anyway, the Safe Haven movie. I heard when it came out, there was just this massive like critical backlash, and no one likes the Nicholas Sparks movies. Like some people will go see them opening weekend and be like, oh, whatever. Yeah. But, like, the critics usually don't like them, but there's never usually vitriol for them. Yeah. It's just, like, they're just bad romantic Yeah, they movies. just happen. Whatever. Yeah. And this one was, there was vitriol. So I'm like, what the fuck happened? Like, how did a Nicholas Sparks movie get this much vitriol? And everyone's talking about this plot twist. And I'm like, well, what is the... It's a romance movie. What the fuck would the plot twist be? So I went online and found a review where some jackass like, like I would have done spoiled the whole movie. Because that's, that's what you should do for bad movies. That's yeah. kind of my philosophy on that. But anyway, then this, so it turns out, sort of, there's this main romantic couple, this, like, you know, there's this chick and a dude, and the chick, like, throughout the movie, she has a best friend, played by Colby Smulders from The Avengers and How I Met Your Mother. Turns out at the end of the movie, Colby Smulders is a ghost, and she's the ghost of the guy's dead wife, who's prompting this girl to get in a relationship with her husband so he cannot be alone anymore. And that's the movie. What the fuck? <laughs> How great is that? That's... That's fucking crazy. Yeah. I know, like, Richard Roper, his review of it, because he's been writing for Roger Ebert lately, and Richard Roper said, like, this movie is, like, literally insane. I'm not saying it's just, it's nutty or anything. I'm saying it's literally insane. So, those are kind of the movies we've been dealing with. Yeah. And that sort of brings us to this week, where we had two releases. One... Just that was released very in a weird way. It's the movie Dead Man Down, directed by Niles Arden Oplev. He's the director of the Swedish Girl with the Dragon Tattoo film, and um, this is his first English language movie. I thought it was okay, like not not great, but good, definitely in parts and and good overall. A lot of interesting elements. Um, I you know it's very forgettable. I'm never going to watch it again or anything. But you know, if you had absolutely nothing else to do this weekend, it would have been okay to go see. It, it totally bombed because it was a very yeah. weird, weird to put it up against the Oz movie and weird to put it out on March 8th. It was just a weird release window. This is more of a movie I would say you'd put on in October or something. Yeah. But anyway, no one cares about that movie, made no money. Oz the Great and Powerful, however, made $80.5 million. <laughs> and I kind of expected it was going to be big, definitely not that big because yeah. Disney is a power hitter right now, box office wise. Everything they touch kind of just turns to fountains of gold. With, with which they use to buy beloved companies that yes. create best, like, you know, my favorite franchises from my childhood. Yes. Disney will soon own your childhood, Sean. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. They're going to, like, buy Sonic the Hedgehog next. Like, yes. what the fuck? How, is this, how are you doing this? And then we'll get Why me? And then they'll make Pixar Sonic the Hedgehog. That'd be okay. I'm, directed, I'm totally behind that. Directed by Brad Bird. It'd be great. But anyway, um, <laughs> so Oz the Great and Powerful very much, you know, it follows in their line of recent live-action films like the Alice in Wonderland movie, the Tim Burton one, where they're kind of taking these sort of beloved public domain properties and doing either prequels or sequels or something yeah. to them. And Oz is better than Alice in Wonderland because Alice in Wonderland was a steaming pile of horse shit, even though it had some... Uh, I thought it had a very good Alice. That's where we discovered Mia Wasikowska, who's a really good actress. Thank God she got away from Tim Burton as fast as possible, so he didn't ruin her. Anyway, but, and, and Oz, it still exhibits a lot of those problems where it's very much, it's too rooted in other interpretations of the series. I mean, it is, they're not 
saying this outright. No one involved in the movie is saying this outright. It is, if you have not seen it, it is absolutely a prequel to the 1939 Wizard of Oz, you know, the beloved classic. Yeah. That's just what it is. It's, it's, that's everything about it. It's the, all the design choices of Oz are taken right from that movie. The plot is supposed to like line up like, you know, when it's over, then you know like that's where the Wizard of Oz starts and all this stuff. And I have no interest in that. I, there's no yeah. scenario where I would ever have interest in a prequel to this. For one, I don't think you can make a prequel to an 80-year-old movie. Yeah, that's yeah, kind of, kind of really dumb thing to do. Yeah, because the technologies are different, tastes are different, aesthetics are different. And that movie is too iconic to touch. It's stupid yeah. to try comparing yourself to it because no matter what you do, that movie's better than you. Yeah, That's, it'd be like trying to make like a prequel to King Kong or something. Yeah, yeah. Like, why, why even try? Yeah. What the fuck are you going to do? And what especially perplexes me about this scenario is that that Wizard of Oz movie has very little to do with the L. Frank Baum books. Yeah. There are 17 L. Frank Baum books. You could do so much with Oz. Mm-hmm. And Sam Raimi is a director, I think, who could do so much with yeah. it. Just ha- it's a big fantasy landscape. Have fun with it and do something different. Don't tie yourself into this existing you know, 80-year-old movie. Yeah. That makes no sense. I mean, it makes business sense. Mm-hmm. And that's why it made $80 million this weekend. Yeah. Uh, Disney is very business smart right now. But I think their business decisions are really undermining their creativity in most of their live-action films that they themselves are making. Obviously, they aren't touching Marvel or anything. Yeah. Marvel's still independent creatively. Um, but, so that's sort of like... Oz the Great and Powerful has a lot of those problems. But it's still a Sam Raimi movie. He's a really fun director. He has a lot of fun stylistically throughout the movie. His use of 3D is really, really just kind of giddy, and I would definitely recommend, if you're going to see this movie... There's no reason to see it in 2D. It's a 3D movie. Half of it just plays like a Disney World ride where he is just throwing shit at you. And it's wonderful because Sam Raimi gets... 3D is a gimmick. He's a director who kind of likes visual gimmicks. He Mm -hmm. works them into his films, I think, very naturally. Yeah. And and I I could easily imagine some other Sam Raimi films being in this format. So... You know, if he had gotten to direct, you know, Spider-Man 4 instead of them doing the reboot, he probably would have made that in 3D and had Spider-Man just every five seconds webbed in the camera. Yeah, I'm thinking of, like, the, in an Evil Dead movie, one of the dead, I just, like, projectile vomiting into the camera. Yeah. He'd do that. Oh, totally. So, you know, Sam Raimi has some fun there. James Franco is very good as the eponymous Wizard of Oz. Um, his name's Oscar Diggs in this movie. And that's actually where the film succeeds best, is it's... It's a good character story about this character. It's thoughtful in how he becomes the wizard. There's The finale is absolutely spectacular in how it brings together sort of the mythology of the wizard and, and how he beats the, the Wicked Witches. It's, it's a lot of fun there. Um, so anything surrounding the James Franco character I think works fairly well, even though it's a, obviously a very archetypical story. He's this, you know, lying bastard, comes to Oz, everyone mistakes him for someone he isn't, yeah. and then he has to prove himself. That's been done a million times. Yeah. That part of it is done reasonably well. But there are other decisions that are just completely inexplicable. Like Mila, so there's three witches in the movie, which A, I did not reference this in my review. I feel I have to go into it now. This movie's gender politics are just broken, where you you meet at the beginning the Mila Kunis witch, and then later you meet Glinda the Good Witch, the same witch that's in the 1939 film. She's played by Michelle Williams. Mila Kunis plays Witch of the the West, because she becomes wicked. Yeah. Spoilers. Anyway. What? It happens like... Witch of the West becomes wicked? Yeah, it happens like 30 minutes into the movie. Anyway, but the point is, you know, so these are two good witches, and they're like, oh, there's an evil witch out there, but now that we have you here, wizard, we can beat her. And I'm like, you're witches, you have magic, why don't you just go fucking beat her? And then we later find out Glinda is incredibly powerful, way more powerful than James Franco, because he's not actually a wizard. Yeah. 
And she knows he's not actually a wizard, but she still says, we had to wait for you. There's just something about that that's a little yeah. bit <laughs> a little bit skeevy. The film's racial politics are also a little weird. There's like three main black characters in the movie. Two of them are servants, and one of them is a woodworker. Take that as you will. Um, other, other than that, the Oz is very whitewashed. Um, but anyway, getting back to the whole Wicked Witch thing. So Mila Kunis plays this good witch, and... <laughs> In the first, like, once uh, James Franco gets to Oz, they, like, spend the night together. She falls madly in love with him. And then he, because he's really just a womanizing bastard, yeah. kind of abandons her. And so she, that turns her into the Wicked Witch of the West from the 1939 film. They make her look as identical as possible, wears the same costume, does the same thing with the fire where she, like, bursts out of it, all of that. So, A, that's a really stupid origin story that she just yeah. was spurned by James Franco. Yes, it's, she's just, like, the world's most bitter ex of all time. Yeah. That, like, it literally turns her skin green, and uh-huh. she turns evil and wicked. Yeah. And then, it also, I just do not understand the decision to cast Mila Kunis in that part. I like Mila Kunis. Everyone yeah. likes Mila Kunis. She's a good actress. Sometimes she's a great actress. Nobody, though, especially someone who is as identifiable as Mila Kunis could step into that role. Because as soon as you start making the comparisons to the actress who played the Wicked Witch in the 1939 film, you're going to lose. Because yeah. that character is not just iconic, she's been iconic for almost a century. Yeah. Every person in the theater will know that. So when they have Mila Kunis try to do that laugh, it's painful. Because mm-hmm. we know what that laugh sounds like. Everyone's seen that movie like 30 fucking times. You know, you can't turn on a TV at Thanksgiving without seeing that performance. Yeah. So, I don't know why you would try to invite those comparisons. Same thing where, like, they have all the locations from the original movie. You've got the Yellow Brick Road, you've got an Emerald City, you've got the Munchkin Town, all of these things. And, but now they're all shitty CGI. Again, the original Wizard of Oz is a gorgeous movie. Yeah. Made with, like, really cool sound stages and sets and matte paintings. And CGI kind of sucks. And it especially... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's maybe a bit of an understatement. Yeah. CGI really sucks in this movie because... It's so cartoony. It's so, like, candy colorful, not tactile or physical in any way, shape, or form. So, A, the actors never look like they're interacting with real things. Like, it is painfully obvious every second of the movie that's set in Oz that they are on a green screen. This is the, one of the most artificial-looking movies I've ever seen, and I, I despise the look of it. It looks pretty awful and just gaudy and just does not... Nothing about it coalesces. Mm-hmm. But... Then you're also, but it would have a better chance at succeeding if all the locations weren't taken from a movie we all know and love. So again, yeah, what well, I do not understand these creative decisions. And but again, it's it's a very identifiable product. Disney is probably correct in thinking, obviously, as the money proves, yeah, that people will flock to something they know, and it's not a bad movie. So they're not being you know ripped off or anything. But I just I want. I want Disney to make good live-action movies, because if they're going to do these and I have to go see them, I'd like them to maybe allow the people they get to make these more creative freedom, get better scripts, you yeah. know, get better stories out there, don't just do these cookie-cutter things, because I would contend, I think this Oz movie could have still made $80 million if it had been a better movie. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, because it didn't make $80 million because of its quality. Like, if it had no. been a really terrible movie, it would have made less, but it being an okay movie and then being part of this really identifiable franchise and then having some names like Mila Kunis and James Franco attached to it that everybody knows, that's what got it its money. Yeah. And that it, you know, they very much marketed it in the same vein as Alice in Wonderland, which made a billion dollars. Yeah. Uh, I still have to stress that. 
Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland made a billion dollars. You can all go cry in a corner now. Let's have a moment of silence for humanity. Now we're back. All right. <laughs> why, do you have to, why do you have to bring the podcast down like that? All right. Well, let's talk about something a little more happy. We got some new trailers this week for movies we've been looking forward to. Movies, yes. we, will, movies we will be covering extensively on this year podcast. Undoubtedly. Yes. First of those, and this is really exciting because there was an awesome trailer, and this movie looks so good, and that is Iron Man Motherfucking 3. Yes, the, that, that is the title. It, it popped up, Iron Man Motherfucking 3. After this trailer, don't you think that's pretty much what it should be called? Yeah, definitely, definitely. It looks like Marvel spent all the money on this movie, and I don't just mean all of their money or all of Disney's money. I mean all the money in the world. This movie looks fucking expensive. Yeah, yeah. That attack on his house... That is one of the best, just from the trailers, integrations of CGI and live action I think I've ever seen. They, yeah. they made that look fucking plausible. Yeah, no, that, that, that trailer was really spectacular. Yeah. It has just the right balance of, obviously there's going to be some spectacular action here, which the Iron Man movies have not had yet. Yeah. Which, yeah. which that is promising. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think these trailers are more thrilling than any given action sequence in the Iron Man films to date. Yeah, I agree. I love John Favreau. He's not a good action director. He was good at everything else in those movies. But yeah, it is. Know. It is the weird downfall of modern superhero movies. It's like the thing you would not expect that modern superhero movies are actually really good, but none of them have good action. Just like not a fucking one. The Avengers. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Avengers. <laughs> yeah. I guess. But other than Avengers, Avengers is the exception. Well, I think, and I think Avengers may have. Change things yeah, like you hopefully. can. De- you can definitely tell Iron Man three has influences from what how Joss yeah. Whedon shot things, but in any case, um, so uh, hopefully Iron Man three will do that well. But that's this trailer shows that balanced with a lot of good character stuff. Like clearly, this is a movie about Tony Stark again, like Iron Man one, just dealing with him as a very sort of broken man. Yeah, he's, he's a kind of a fucked up guy deep down. Mm-hmm. And, and also, you know, continuing his relationship with Pepper, which we all love, because Gwyneth Paltrow's awesome. Yeah. And doing some more with Rhodey, pushing him in new directions. And having a villain who looks like he's actually threatening. Yeah. <laughs> not helps. just another Iron Man. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully. Hopefully that movie does not end with the Mandarin getting into a giant Iron Man suit and fighting Iron Man, because that would be really disappointing. Yeah. But what do you think, we, uh, of what we've seen of Ben Kingsley so far, how do you think he's going to be? I mean, we didn't see much. Like, no. the, you know, he had a handful of lines in the trailer. They did a very similar thing to the Iron Man 2 trailer, where it's like, just have the villain say really dramatic shit yeah. over, like, whatever's going on in the trailer. And so, I mean, I think it's going to be good. Yeah. It's like, I can't say anything towards the performance because we just haven't seen that much of it, but I I'm excited. There's a couple of lines in the trailer where he sounds really similar to Heath Ledger. Yeah, the yeah, there's Knight. one in particular near the beginning where he sounds, yeah. It is a very similar vo- voice, which, yeah. is, but it's weird because past that line, it doesn't sound like that. It's no. just like that one particular line near the beginning of the trailer where it's like, "That yeah. sounds like you just ripped audio from the Dark Knight somehow." Yeah, I don't think they did, but and made yeah. Fletcher's voice slightly lower. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, it'll definitely be interesting to see what they do with the Mandarin because. As you've repeatedly stated, yeah. Iron Man really doesn't have any good villains. Yeah, yeah. The Mandarin is kind of the closest he has to the iconic adversary. Yeah, but nobody fucking knows who no. the Mandarin is. But yeah, he's... And they really can't do the Mandarin as he's written in many of the comics because that would be horribly, horribly racist. Yes. He's, he's is, called the Mandarin. Yeah. You, you, can, you can make your assumptions about the way he's portrayed based on that name. 
And from what I've heard from people like press members who've gotten to see a little more of the movie, that their their sort of approach to the matter in this film is he's much more of a media savvy guy who just manipulates image and things like that. That sounds interesting. Yeah. That's something very much. That's a good counterpoint to Tony Stark. Yeah. So I just think all signs point to yes with this one. Marvel is on such a great creative hot streak. I mean, never mind their insane amounts of money. Yeah. Their Scrooge McDuck vaults full of gold they have now from Avengers. It just looks like they are, they really get, I mean, they get their characters, and that's the number one thing about Marvel. Yeah. And I think, I think hiring Shane Black to direct is a great choice, because the other thing about this trailer is the cinematography. I mean, minus the visual effects, cinematography, there's just some amazing shots. Like back in the first trailer where he's in the snow and everything, yeah, that looks gorgeous. A lot of gorgeous imagery in this one. So, really good trailer. There's that part where Tony Stark has a fucking Uzi and his like Iron Man gauntlet, and he's like shooting both of them at the same time. That's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, that was my favorite part of the whole trailer, just because I was not expecting all of a sudden to see Tony Stark shooting a gun. And it makes me really curious about how how far like how how much do they beat Tony down to get him to that point where he's <laughs> yeah. just like I'm just gonna riddle this dude with fucking bullets like fuck it fuck repulsor beams I just need some hot lead right now yeah well that'll be interesting to see yeah so I think we're in agreement every piece of marketing for Iron Man 3 makes us more excited for this yeah, movie yeah definitely so the other big trailer that came out this week and it actually didn't get a huge amount of publicity because it's only like a minute and a half long yeah Kind of a weird trailer. Mm-hmm. It's the new one for Star Trek Into Darkness. Star Trek Into Darkness. It, it was interesting because at the end of that trailer, we finally get someone official saying the title, and it still sounds fucking dumb, even yeah. if you Star Trek Into Darkness. Yeah. You know, it doesn't still, work. Yeah. Anyway, this trailer is basically just, just action. It's just things yeah. blowing up for a minute and a half, and... It's it's interesting. This is a kind of terrible trailer compared to the other ones they've done for this movie. To me, because the other yeah. ones had sort of an atmosphere and a little bit of plot hints, yeah. and some really cool. I mean, this one had cool imagery, but it had that, those other trailers lingered a little more, gave you a better idea of what this world they're going to be in for this new one looks like. Yeah, this is just explosion, explosion, yeah. gunshot, yeah. explosion, gunshot, explosion. Kirk's being a dick. Yeah. So, like a couple of people get to say some lines. There's like. I mean, the, the most substantial part of the whole trailer is, is the, like, Kirk in the office of some, you know, Federation dude. It's Bruce Greenwood from yeah. the first movie. Okay, yeah. Captain Pike. Admiral Pike in this continuity. Yeah, but that is, that is like, the the dialogue from the trailer is just basically yeah. that scene, and then I think Spock says something once. Yeah. Spock's like, oh, Kirk, you you darned rapscallion, something to that. Effect. Yeah. <laughs> That's not logical. Yeah. Anyway, it's, it's interesting. I... I'm a little apprehensive about Star Trek Into Darkness right now just because I liked all the trailers and then, I don't know, but the more I see like their Super Bowl ad into this ad and some of the other stuff they've been doing recently is really, really pushing this as an action movie. And while they kind of advertised the first one like that, the first one definitely had more of a story bent to it in the advertising. And it also felt a little more Star Trek-y in the advertising. They used, for instance, the Star Trek music. They showed the characters a little more, how they fit into this universe. And... I don't know, I almost feel like they're adjusting direction now that they know J.J. Abrams is directing Star Wars, where... Um, I mean, I think it's more because they don't they don't need to advertise this as a Star Trek movie in the sense that it's a Star Trek, like, from the original series kind of thing, yeah. because everybody saw and loved the 2009 film, where they're just marketing this as a sequel to that, yeah. and it is definitely a sequel to that. Like, stylistically, 
like ignoring how they marketed the first movie, the first movie was not a Star Trek movie in the sense of like you know what the old Star Trek movies were like. It's not. It's not Star Trek like that. Star it Trek is very in your face, over the top action with a lot of like really cheesy but you know endearing humor is yeah. what that first movie was. And well, it I seems think like first, they're kind of like. Yeah. Marking this based on that. Yeah, and I don't mind having more action because that's what the first one did and it did it very well. Yeah. But, you know, I just hope, I do hope that 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 does not overwhelm the story because where the initial Star Trek did feel like a Star Trek movie is the characters were right and the story was right. And I I just, I really want... Red Matter. They did shit like that all the time in the original Star Trek. Yeah, but we know better now, (laughs) goddammit. Like, fucking, you've got to be kidding me, Red Matter. God. But don't, didn't you love hearing Leonard Nimoy say the words red matter? No, I didn't. Okay. No. Right. I hated that. Okay. <laughs> Fucking red matter. All right. Anyway. But, yeah, I just, you know, I, I want it to still feel like Star Trek in some way. And that trailer was very much, I don't know, they may have just been flashing the words, J.J. Abrams wants to direct Star Wars. Because it's like, that's I, definitely now that you know he's directing that, if you go back and look at the first Star Trek movie from 2009 or the trailers for this, it's very clear J.J. Abrams' influence on these movies is not Star Trek. It's Star Wars. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, definitely. It's that style of action and effects and things like that. Yeah. And that's fine. I just, you know, I want to make sure Star Trek Into Darkness has, you know, a, definitely more of the character focus of the first one, more of the story focus. And if they have, you know, this level of action and property destruction, that's okay as long as they get the other things right. And I and, and J.J. Abrams is very good at all that. But, um, you, but you know, know, it is hard to convey the character side of thing in a trailer like this, especially when you are marketing this movie to the masses. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, this is not an art house film. This is Star Trek. But as we just said... Oh, Star Trek 2009. But we were just talking about the Iron Man 3 trailer, which yeah. did that spectacularly yeah, well. Yeah, I so. agree. But it is that is a tricky thing to do. Yeah, it, they, is. it makes a lot more sense to be in your face like explosions, awesome Star right, Trek. Right. That's what people want. Well, obviously Paramount has a lot invested in this because they lost Marvel and uh, yeah. that was their cash cow. They need Star Trek to be their cash cow now. <laughs> and they're about to lose J.J. Abrams too. Yep. So <laughs> it sucks for them, I guess. Yeah. I mean. Definitely, you know, they, the, the cast of Star Trek keeps saying, no, J.J. Abrams will come back to do Star Trek 3. Shut up. No, he won't. He's doing Star Wars. He's going to be swimming in so much Disney money that he will never come back to you. And I actually would be okay with that because I, I think it would be interesting if after this one, they, I would like to see them keep this cast and the general aesthetics, but maybe go in a new direction. They because get Shane Black to direct it. Sure. He just jumps onto the third movie in any, like, given nerdy franchise. Yeah. And it it just, you know, I think J.J. Abrams made a, at least we know, one really good Star Trek movie. I think Into Darkness will probably be really good also. But he's, again, he's a Star Wars guy. He's shown that. He's going to go make his Star Wars movie now, which I assume will be very similar to these Star Trek movies, just it will say Wars at the beginning, not Trek. And, you know, that's fine. But I think it would be interesting to see someone use these cast members and the definitely all the aesthetics they've made, like the really cool new Enterprise and all that, and maybe tell more Star Trekky stories, which yeah. I think you could do definitely in a third film once you've brought in the bigger audience. Yeah. So I'd like I would love to see another like naval battle in space, like from the Wrath of Khan. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, yeah. I would like to have the, uh, those Star Trek movies too. Yeah. So anyway, but as we just said, J.J. Abrams is of course directing Star Wars, and this week we got. The most significant piece of news since uh, we learned J.J. Abrams would be directing. Yeah. And that is George Lucas confirmed in an interview that not only are Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, and Carrie Fisher signed on to star in Star Wars Episode Seven in some capacity, we yeah. don't know what, 
But they have been in discussions on this for a very long time. Yeah. I mean, we should be clear that in the actual interview he did, he said that they were technically, that he had been in talks with Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, and Carrie Fisher. So he didn't, he didn't straight out confirm it, but the way he said it sounded, made it seem like, oops, I should not have mentioned that this was going on, and so I'm not going to say how those talks turned out, but I think it's pretty obvious that they're going to be in the movie. And he said, his exact quote was, we had already signed Mark and Carrie and Harrison, or we were pretty much in the final stages of negotiation when the films were announced. Yeah. So, that's wild. That's yeah. very interesting. So, we will be getting, I mean, we that definitely hammers down, I mean, I think this is the most significant piece of news on the film yet, because yeah. that hammers yeah. down where it's taking place, when it's taking place. Yeah, and you know for sure, at least, it is, you know, going to be set close to, or I guess not that close, but, like, after the end of the original trilogy. Within their lifetimes. Yeah, with, yeah. within their lifetimes, with those characters back, and, yeah. they're, like, those characters are going to be involved in some way. So these are direct sequels to yeah. the Star Wars movies everyone loves. Yeah. So, how do you feel about this, Sean? Uh, like, it's just, I feel the same way as I've always felt about these movies. Like, the fact that they're, that they're going to bring back Harrison Ford, Mark Hamill, and Carrie Fisher doesn't change my mind that much. I mean, the only one... Of that crew that I really would have appreciated seeing come back is Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker because I can see a place for him in the movies in a way I can't. For, I don't know where you'd put Han Solo. Like other than as for a small cameo, I don't think having Han Solo have any sort of like major plot role. I don't think that would work that well because he's well. There's, Han. A, there's a, well. There's also a problem with Han in that you know Han is used least effectively in Return of the Jedi because his arc is kind of over. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, I mean, he's like Han Solo, and he's also not, Han Solo has no sort of big, or at least like in the expanded universe that I'm familiar with, he has no like really big role. Like he's not, you know, at the very least Leia is like the head of the new Senate, you yeah. know, and Luke is like creating a new Jedi Academy. Han's just sort of palling around doing whatever he wants to do with Chewie now. Like he has nothing to do. Yeah, and I can definitely see a place for Carrie Fisher because, as you said, yeah, head yeah. of the new Senate. Yeah, she like Luke, a small, sort of like official role. She and Luke would be yeah. working closely in you know tandem. Yeah, on these issues. So that, yeah, and I, I, I mean, I've always actually sided with Harrison Ford when he said he thought Han Solo should have died at the end of Empire. I think yeah. from an arc standpoint, that would have been more true to who Han Solo is. But I mean, and I, that's not to say I I don't appreciate having him in Return of the Jedi because it's Han Solo and I love yeah. him. But you know. That is definitely, he is much less interesting in film three once yeah. he's a nice guy. So we'll see. Um, it's, it's, it speaks to the apathy I just have for the new Star Wars trilogy that we also learned this week that Harrison Ford will be in Anchorman 2. That excites me. That piece of Harrison Ford casting excites me more than this piece of Harrison Ford casting. And again, Harrison Ford is maybe my favorite actor of all time. Yeah. And yeah. Sounds really fun for him to be a foil for Will Ferrell in an Anchorman movie. Yeah, yeah. I really love that idea. <laughs> and I wonder, I wonder how, like, what was the pitch meeting for that? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's the part of it. Like, I'm just so curious how the fuck that happened. Like, yeah. what, do, who came up with that? Like, how, how did they pitch that to Harrison Ford? Why did Harrison Ford be like, yeah, sure, fuck it. I'll be in Anchorman too. That makes sense. Anyway, so, yeah, and I, I kind of, I feel pretty similar to you in that Again, I've I've always been like, you know, I don't really need these movies. But I don't know. This this excites me more than some of the other news we've gotten, but I just it, you run the risk as always happens when you bring back beloved characters of fucking it up. Yeah, yeah, like I don't think Case I just, in point. Yeah, I don't think I just don't think there's like that big of a reason to bring them back other than to have them be in very small supporting roles other than Luke could be a little more major. 
Yeah. And maybe that's what they'll do. Hopefully that's what they'll do. I do think J.J. Abrams is a director I would trust with these characters, because yeah. as we saw in his Star Trek movie, he did a wonderful job by Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. And, and closing you know, that character out, that's Leonard Nimoy's final appearance as Spock, worked really well. The difference, though, is that you know, there's no point in the Star Trek verse where Spock's story ends. Yeah. These characters' yeah, stories did end. characters. Yeah. These characters' stories on film at least did yeah. end. Yeah. And, you know, I always think of stuff like, you know, Star Trek Generations, for instance, where they bring Kirk back one last time, and he yeah. dies. We all know how well that turned out. And he dies falling off a fucking bridge. It's terrible. Yeah. Really terrible. So yeah, it is. It's either going to be something like that or something like the Spock thing where they're, they're in small but crucial plot roles and we really like seeing them one last time. Yeah. And if they do that, that'd be fine. I'd be yeah. fine with that. I just, you know, it doesn't, like, like you said, I just, I would still be so much more excited if Star Wars 7 were something just completely different. Yeah, yeah, Star Wars that, is, that is what I would want, but I know, it's, I mean, obviously, now we know for sure that's not going to happen. But. And I mean... I have to go back to this, as it's we just were talking about you know Disney's live action movies and the Oz stuff. I don't want the Disney fied Star Wars Seven where they're just doing all the like basic, easy yeah. cop out popular choices to make just kind of something that gets out there and makes money. Yeah. Now I don't think J.J. Abrams will let them do that. I think he's a director with the amount of clout that he gets to dictate these things. Yeah. And I do think Lucasfilm is the pervading creative voice force here, not Disney. But mm-hmm. we shall see. Yeah. Yeah, like this is the most substantial news we've had about these movies, but it's not. Yeah, we just know they are in the movies, and that's it. And it was yeah. something where we basically suspected they were most likely going to do that if they could. So, and you know what? If they're getting those three, we better hear about Billy D. Williams soon. <laughs> and and who's playing Chewie? Because I know Peter Mayhew has, has said he's you know he's kind of he's pretty old. I don't know if he can do it anymore. But there are there are a lot there are some other good performers out there who are good uh, in in suits and stuff. We, but you have to have Chewie. If you're going to have Han, have Chewie in there. Oh, God, dude. What if Chewbacca's in it and he's CGI? I just thought about oh, that. Oh, fucking God. Oh, God, Sean. Because if Chewbacca's in it, he's, he's gonna probably be, going to be CGI. Yeah, like, he's they're not be, going to put a dude in the suit. If, if there's Peter, no way they're going to do that. If Peter Mayhew comes back, I think they will do him in a suit because they did that in Star Wars 3. But if they cannot get Peter Mayhew back, you are correct. It will be CGI. There's no, no alternative. Yeah. So hopefully Chewbacca's not in the movies. But, that, but I don't want to see Han Solo if he doesn't have Chewbacca there with him. I know in the expanded universe Chewbacca eventually dies, yeah. but there are adventures. He doesn't die like a day after episode yeah, yeah, six. Yeah, it, it, it takes a while. Yeah, and obviously if you're going to do a film with these characters, again, no fucking point in having them there if you don't have Chewbacca. It'd be like just getting rid blowing up R2-D2 and C-3PO. Who will probably also be CGI. Yeah, I think those ones are a little more likely that they're yeah. not going to be CGI. Well, because Anthony CGI. Daniels yeah. is still around, yeah. still doing it. So... God, CGI Chewbacca. Do you know, it's like you know CGI Millennium Falcon. They'll be in there. I'm I'm so sad. I'm so sad to think about this. Oh God, this is terrible. Yeah, see, this is. We don't need. We don't need. We don't. We don't need to do this. We don't need to have these fucking Star Wars movies. But all right, let's let's make fun of something. Okay, let's make fun of something. Yeah. All right, this week, big rumor came out. Latino Review, I believe, was the site that published this. They do a lot of um, scoops like this. Many of them turn out to be wrong, even though they say they're always right. They're often wrong. Anyway, uh, big rumor... Why are you whispering? We're recording a podcast. That's a good point. If they didn't hear you, they could just dial it back and turn up the volume. Okay, good point. Anyway, rumor this week, the latest in a long series of rumors about Warner Brothers' Justice League movie. A long series of rumors. A long 
long. Should we remind the five years of fucking never ending? Oh my god! Ever since Batman Begins, for fuck's sake, shut the fuck up about the goddamn Justice League movie. Which has, we need to remind you, never been officially announced or greenlit by Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers has said fucking nothing about it ever, ever for since like their like new wave of DC movies. Mum's the word, motherfucker. Obviously, yes, they would like to make a Justice League movie. But just sh- sh- shut up and let them let them tell us what it's going to be eventually. Let them yeah. work it the fuck out. This latest rumor, which oh God, I, I this is so stupid, um, is that Christopher Nolan has been put in charge of the DC universe, just as Joss Whedon is working very closely with the Marvel guys yeah. as a contract with them through 2015. Christopher Nolan has signed a similar deal. He will be overseeing, if not outright directing, the new Justice League movie. David Goyer will be writing it. He wrote uh, the Batman films. Up, to, He did not write Dark Knight Rises, but he wrote the first two. Um, and he, re- he has written Man of Steel. And that Zack Snyder will probably be involved. And that not only will um, the actor Henry Cavill playing Superman play Superman in Justice League, but Christian Bale will return as Batman, the same Batman from the Christopher Nolan films, to play Batman in the new Justice League, Christian, Christopher Nolan's Justice League movie, I don't even know no. where to start on how yeah. stupid that rumor is. I will say up front, yes, if Warner Brothers could make that happen, they would all love to make it happen. They would jack off because they got it to happen. They, yeah. would, be, they would have orgies in the studio because, yes, of course they would want that to happen. Christopher Nolan has made them a shit yeah. ton of money, just metric fuckloads of money, and Christopher, Christian Bale is a very recognizable Batman right now. People like those. Man of Steel is apparently very good. But, Sean, tell me, in what alternate reality is Christopher Nolan ever indicated that he would do something like this? Never. There's no... Like, the thing about this rumor is that Christopher Nolan, if they, if they do make a Justice League movie, he may be involved as, like, a producer. Like, I can see that. Like, the same way he's involved with Man of Steel. Like, yeah. there's no fucking way he's directing it. There's absolutely no way. Because we, we just got confirmation yesterday he is making the film Interstellar for release yeah. December 2014, produced by Warner Brothers. <laughs> yeah. Idiots. Anyway, go back. And then, you know, and Zack Snyder, again, he probably would be involved if they were to make it. He would most likely be the director. At least they would approach him to be the director and want him to do it. Like, I would totally see that, you know, with all the buzz that's around Man of Steel and all the word that's going to be really, really fucking good. That's what the, that's the move they would try to make. So that's, like, a very easy thing to try to predict. And if they were to make the Justice League movie, and, and if, like, based off of the stuff that's going to be going on in Man of Steel, yes, Henry Cavill would come back as Superman. If they are making a Justice League movie, all that stuff would be true. Like, but, you know, we don't know who's going to direct it. Like, that is the most, like, you know, Zack Snyder maybe. But that's that's a big maybe. The one thing in this that is so bullshit is never, ever going to happen is that Christian Bale comes back as Batman and then the Justice League movies will be tied into those Batman movies in any fucking way. No. no. That is not going to happen. Absolutely no way. Because if Christopher Nolan's involved in any way, there's no way he'd ever let that happen because he would fucking know... Those Batman movies do not mesh with the larger DC universe in any capacity whatsoever. And he made them that way. And he is... Very deliberately. Christopher Nolan is... uh, I hate using this word, but it applies to him. He is an auteur. He is a director with a very specific style, specific voice. And he is a man who has made so much money for these studios that he gets to say what's what. And he decided Dark Knight Rises was the finale. He was very adamant about that. The only reason he made it was because they agreed to let him be the last movie. 
I don't yeah. think he would ever work with Warner Brothers again if they just forced him to suddenly, yeah. you have to keep continuing your series through Justice League. Yeah. But And obviously, he's directing another movie for them. Yeah. He's not going, you know, he has that would break their relationship. Yeah. I think that's pretty clear. Yeah. And so, and again, as you just said, Christian Bale also, he's not the kind of actor who would do this. He was also very adamant that he was done with Batman after Dark Knight Rises. He doesn't want to play Batman anymore. Yeah. And he's not that, the kind that Bruce Wayne Batman, that's done. Like, there's yeah. nothing, there's nothing to do with that character after Dark Knight Rises. Not a single fucking thing. Yeah. And that's what people liked about Dark Knight yeah. Rises, was they ended his story. And again, Christian, I also don't, I would not peg Christian Bale as the kind of franchise guy yeah. who would sign on for three more Batman movies through Justice League. Yeah. He did three Batman movies because he was working with Christopher Nolan. Yeah. Not because he wanted to play the same character over and over again. That's just not the kind of actor he is. Yeah. So, this is stupid. Yeah, it's really stupid. I mean, because like half of it is stuff that anybody with a brain can, can, can predict is what Warner Brothers is going to try to do if they make a Justice League movie. Yeah. No way... Have they done this? In no way is that movie in pre-production to the point that they would have people signed on or anything. Yeah, like. Christian this, Bale is signed on for other movies. Yeah. You can't sign him on for a hypothetical production four or five years down the road. Yeah, so so there's there's no way we can know that this there's there's no way that Warner Brothers has done this. So there's no way we can know that they have done this for fucking sure. But it's very easy to predict that if Man of Steel does really well, Warner Brothers is going to try to push forward with the Justice League movie in some way. Like, they're obviously mulling it over, but nothing has happened with it yet. Man of Steel has not come out yet. They haven't seen if it's going to be a financial success on top of what is likely to be a critical success based on the early buzz. You know, it's like, at the very least, Man of Steel has to come out before they think about any of this shit. Or at least they start making concrete plans, which yeah. Latino Review reported that they are not only making concrete plans, that the plans are done. It's like, yeah. no, shut up. You know, three months ago we had a hit fix report that, you know, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was signed on to play Batman in Justice League. Well, no, he wasn't. We know yeah. that now. Yeah. Because Josh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is doing other stuff. Yeah. And that and was a That would have been even with, like, if they had done that, I would... I would not have seen the Justice League movie. Like that is how that is how dumb that decision would be to bring that character back to play Batman in a Justice League movie where nobody nobody under the fucking sun wants to see Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character as Batman in the Justice League movie. Everybody wants to see Bruce Wayne as Batman in the Justice League movie. Yeah, that would have been the stupidest fucking thing. I just and I also I I I think while Warner would obviously love to have a Justice League movie. I think they themselves recognize you need a couple more pieces in place. Yeah, yeah. It's not just something you can come the fuck out with, just like, a Justice League movie, and just, like, push it out there and have it be successful just because the Avengers worked. You know, the Avengers was part of a very long process, and that is why it worked. Yeah, I mean, at the very... very easily could have failed spectacularly. Yeah, and, and, you know, at the very least, what you need to have, you need to have one of the movies crucial to it out. Yeah, yeah. And Man of Steel is not out. And again, yeah, it would be like if they if before fucking Iron Man one came out, we heard news about like Chris Evans being Captain America. You know, yeah. that's like that's like what we are hearing about. That's like how implausible these rumors are. There's like no way these studios have any idea what's going to happen because they want to see how the existing movies are going to do before they move forward with anything else. Yeah, obviously these discussions are taking place, but they're just discussions because you can't sign on people for something that might not get made. Yeah, and there is no guarantee at all, that they are going to actually sit down and make a Justice League movie. Yeah. Yeah. Because Man of Steel could come out and bomb like Superman Returns did. I don't think it's going to. 
because it's apparently a very good movie, and they're marketing it very well, yeah. and it's got Christopher Nolan's name on it, it's got Zack Snyder's name on it, and they've, again, they've done very smart marketing so far, it's got a good time slot when it comes out in the year, but it could do poorly. Yeah, yeah, that is certainly possible. And then if you've already signed on the, the America's biggest director and Christian Bale and all these other people yeah, that make your Justice League movie, the, this, Henry Cavill, the Superman in this hypothetical situation yeah. where Man of Steel bombed, you wouldn't want him then signed on to be Superman in your Justice League movie. I mean, again, go back to everyone knows they made their Green Lantern movie, assuming they would then maybe be able to work Ryan Reynolds into a Justice yeah. League film. Yeah. That didn't That's work. Then yeah. And so that's why they didn't start making the Justice League movie before Green Lantern came out. It came out, it was a fucking bomb, nobody liked it, including the people at Warner Brothers, so they sit, you know, so they smartly went in other directions. Yeah, and that's, and that's sort of the problem that Warner Brothers has is that, I, the reason why I don't think the Justice League movie is going to be made in any time soon is because they've messed up too much in the planning process. Yeah. Like, you know, like with if you look at how Marvel handled the Avengers... That all of the movies that, you know, like Thor, Captain America, Iron Man, all of them were movies that, if they were not great movies, were at least good, okay movies, and they sold well at the box office. Like, there was not a dud other than maybe Incredible Hulk, but even then, that people, wasn't that bad. But people liked it, it made yeah. money, yeah. and the only pro- the, the, the bump in the road was the Edward Norton thing. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, that, that, was, that was the biggest bump in the road, and it was not that big a deal. But for... Warner Brothers, Green Lantern bombing is a huge deal because Green Lantern is one of the principal members of the Justice League. If you're going to make a Justice League movie, you're going to want to have Green Lantern in there. Or else, probably, like, that, that's a big change-up if Green Lantern's not in there. Like, I could see them taking him out, but that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, and they can't... And Green Lantern is the kind of character where it would be tough to just introduce oh, yeah. him. You can't just toss Green... Like, he, like, and that's one of the other things is that, you know, most of the characters other than Superman or Batman... People don't know enough about them that you can just throw the characters in there. Like, nobody knows enough about Green Lantern that you can just have Green Lantern be there and it's okay. For instance, the only could... characters you could do that are Superman and Batman, and those are the two characters that they've already laid the groundwork for, and they didn't necessarily need to. Obviously, they did it more just because those movies would make a lot of money. But well, and even then, we already know Man of Steel was not put into production with the intention of being a Justice League yeah. precursor. Zack Snyder was not given those directions making the film. He said that. We, I mean, I think maybe later in production they may have done something. Maybe there's a post-credits kind of thing. I don't know. But, you know, I don't... That's not... Zack Snyder was just making a Superman movie. Yeah, yeah. And this movie's been in production for a really long time. Mm-hmm. It's been in the planning stages. And it was not planned as part one of a grand master plan. I mean, I think the only way DC is ever going to successfully make a Justice League movie, or, or Warner Brothers, is if they make a separate DC Films division. They need yeah, to do that. Yeah. They need to get someone... To really get their shit together. They need someone like Kevin Feig over at Marvel, who knows Marvel, gets his shit, and is a good businessman and yeah. good film producer who can do all this and head it separately. Mm-hmm. You can't just have them being made under the normal Warner Brothers branch. Yeah. It's, you know... You're not making like you know the Harry Potter series where you just have you know one set of books and you do one every couple of years. Mm-hmm. You're doing something much more complicated than that. Yeah, and and even the Harry Potter series was a separate production company. Mm-hmm. So you know, <laughs> yeah, this is a very this is a lot of they, you know they need to figure this stuff out. And I think the first step is they need to see how Man of Steel is going to do. And yeah. even then. Maybe Man of Steel, I haven't seen it. I don't know if even that's the perfect one that could lead into a Justice League kind of film. Because yeah. as I understand it, it's also under sort of the Christopher Nolan wheelhouse of doing sort of a very down-to-earth Superman story. As 
much as that's possible. As much as like, that's I think, possible, right. I think, I mean, it is... It's the, not the same as the yeah, Batman. Yeah, though. the character that opens the door for a Justice League movie is Superman. Like, right. that, that is the one, you want that one out there first, because Superman sets the tone for the DC universe yeah. at large. I mean, and at the very least, you know, if they do make a Justice League movie... They need to have a Wonder Woman movie out for like first to establish that character. Like that's an absolute must. You can't have a Justice League movie without Wonder Woman. That is DC's three principal characters are Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. You probably want the Flash out there too. If you're gonna make a Justice League movie, you would need the Flash, and the Flash would be a hard character to make a movie about. I think that would be really tricky because he does not have the most interesting, like the easiest powers to convey on screen and make it look really interesting. You know, he runs really fast. That's yeah. hard to you know, we we saw Twilight One. We saw what it looks like when you try to get people to run fast. It it can yeah. be it could very easily be something really, really cheesy. And they already fucked up Green Lantern, so if they don't want to put Green Lantern in there, maybe they can do that. And like the one saving grace they have is that if they do make a Justice League movie, they can reboot Batman in the Justice League movie. I think they could totally pull that off. It'd be really easy. New Batman with the new Justice League movie and then have your own Batman franchise. That's like the one thing that Warner Brothers has on their side if they ever decide to make a Justice League movie. That's like the one thing they've got that they could do, and it would probably work out okay. But everything else is this huge hurdle they have to climb. Right, and this is my point about what I was saying about the tone of Man of Steel. Again, we have not seen it. Don't know what it's going to look like when it's finished. But if it is relatively sober, down-to-earth kind of movie, which I think is a good idea, I'm interested in seeing that, if... If you then took that tone, did a Justice League movie where you had to introduce all the other superheroes in that same universe, would not work. Because yeah. even if you could use that tone for all the movies individually, that might work. But then if you try to put it all in at once, just that giant influx would be something that would not make sense if you are doing something that is relatively sane. Yeah, and you know, also for DC comic book stuff, you know, like Marvel's comic book stuff is pretty insane. It's got nothing on DC, because DC has all that history stretching all the way back to the golden age of comics in a way that Marvel doesn't really, like, you know, Marvel's really started in the 60s with the Fantastic Four. They've got some, like, characters like Captain America left over. But with DC, their comic book shit is so fucking hard to figure out because they have, you know, that multiverse thing where, like, parallel universes is actually critical to the DC universe. So if they want to, like, make the Justice League movie at all faithful to the comics, like... They've got to go batshit insane with it, really. I mean, they have to go batshit insane with it just because they've got, you know, characters as diverse as Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, Flash, like, all together with how powerful all of those characters individually are. Like, there's just... The Justice League is a much harder project to execute the, the Avengers, and the Avengers is amazing that Marvel pulled it off at all. Yeah. and But this is, again, speaks to why they... If Warner Brothers ever wants to do this... They need DC to be its own thing. They need yeah. to just make a sub-production company, get someone in charge of it who knows DC and knows how to handle this because clearly no one at Warner Brothers does. Yeah. And that's okay. Those are movie people. They're yeah. not comic yeah. people. They're not... And you know, they make really fucking good individual Superman... They're comic book movies. Yeah, you know, yeah, those yeah. Batman movies would do not work for Justice League movies, but they are fucking awesome movies on their own right. Yes. It's like better than any of the Marvel movies. Like, as just movies. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, <laughs> you're right about that. It's, it's just, it's weird. And, and, you know, we go back to all these things again. I, I understand, you know, the, the want to have, you know, tie all back into the Christopher Nolan Batman movies because they were big hits. But I think, I think but that, would Warner, that would destroy, that's like, you, yeah. 
that would not help. It would do no, and I think, movie. and I think the the thing is, I think the public is savvy enough about these things. And yeah. The public knows this well enough that I think everyone who saw Dark Knight Rises, which was a lot, it made a lot of money. People know that was the end. It's very clear. Yeah. They didn't, you know, it doesn't flash the end at the end of the film. It might as well. That's that's an ending. I think people are very aware of that. Yeah. I think people are ready to move on to something else. And I think. And that's, again, I think Warner knows that, too, which all ties back into the fact that this rumor is fucking stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Really stupid. All, all of the Justice League movie rumors are stupid. Yeah. Because, again, this movie has never been announced to be in any form of production, ever, by, by Warner Brothers. Yeah. They have been trying to make a Justice League movie fucking forever, because, and, you know, they have been trying to make any of their, like, superhero properties that they have through DC forever. But it's like, those movies are always in production hell, you know, like, they've always been trying to make a Wonder Woman movie. They've always been trying to make a Flash movie. They've, like, they've, always, they've always been considering to make those projects, but they are hard projects to make, and they're not going to, you know, especially after Green Lantern bombed so hard, they're not just going to, like, throw out and, like, push out this fucking Justice League project. How, how much do you think Warner Brothers is just, like, drinking themselves into submission, knowing that they will never be able to get, make that Joss Whedon Wonder Woman movie he offered to make yeah. so many times? Yeah. They really fucked the boat on that one. Yeah. They, they, they really did. Oh, well. He, Joss Whedon was, was scorned, so he went off with Marvel and made them <laughs> fucking rich. Over $2 billion. It's like, here you go. Yeah. It's like, fuck you, DC. I don't want to make your fucking Wonder Woman movie anyways. Yeah. So, I've got Scarlett Johansson now. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I think the last thing I would want to say is that if all the details the Latino Review put out there were as solid and set in stone as they claimed they were... There would have been a press conference. Oh, there yeah. would have been a press yeah. release. If they really had all this done, Warner would not hide this. They would be basking in the glow that they had somehow yeah. nailed this down. Yeah. And they would be announcing it to the world because that's that's called marketing. Yeah, yeah. That wouldn't be keeping this this huge secret. You know, when Marvel had Joss Whedon and they had the whole cast signed on, they were out two years before the movie came out at Comic-Con yeah. doing a, a big press conference. Mm-hmm. So... So yeah, like the long and short of it is, and this is probably not the last time you will hear about us complaining about Justice League rumors. Like we've, at least I have held off talking about it on the podcast for a long time because yeah, because they are constant. This is sort of like the tip of it because of how presumptuous it was, like for the Latino Review of like saying like, no, this is for serious, for reals. Like most of the rumors, at least, pretend like the the, the outlets at least like say. This is possibly not true. Like they still try to like assert it as being like they're definitely doing this, but yeah. there's some sense of rumor around it. This last one was like, no, this we know this for sure. They they like you know we've talked to all these people. They have told us all of this basically kind of thing. Yeah, it was bullshit. I and I have to every time this. I'm I'm getting so sick of this internet culture of these fucking websites breaking these scoops and. And calling them scoops, and most of them are total bullshit. I don't know where they get them from. Maybe they do have sources that were saying these things, but they blow them so out of proportion. It's terrible reporting. It's bad journalistic ethics. And then you have to have a hundred different websites pick it up. It's everywhere. You can't escape it. Twitter explodes. And it just, it makes me, it makes me want to quit. It makes (laughs) me want to stop writing about movies online. And I mean, I don't report on this stuff. I don't write news stuff. I actually, I just had to get out of that because I hate reporting on this shit Mm -hmm. so much. It's just awful. I I try to just stick to writing my reviews and things like that. But even that just gets, there's a point where I'm just like, I don't like doing this. When, you know, why can't we just wait and see what's coming out? It's just everyone searching for SEO traffic. And, you know, a bunch of dogs in a kennel going after a bone. That's 
what it feels like. Yeah. And they're barking really loudly, but they're not cute dogs. They're like fucking German shepherds with like rabies. Okay, I think, I think your metaphor has gotten a little out of control now. All right. They should all be put down. Anyway, <laughs> let's go on. You heard it here first, folks. Jonathan calls for the mass execution of all the movie news reporters. Okay. Let's go on to to more movie stuff, you know, preliminary. Yeah. But here the we stuff have... stuff we actually know about. Yeah, this is actual news confirmed by the filmmakers. We have been getting, over the course of 2013, a huge influx of news about The Amazing Spider-Man 2. And actually, First of all, is, that it is actually fucking called Amazing Spider-Man 2. We know for that now. for sure now. Yeah. It, it, I mean, they could change that, Yeah. but by the time it comes out, it could be The Amazing Spider-Man Into Darkness. Hopefully. Hopefully yeah. that's what it is. Hopefully that's all movies. It would be called The Amazing Spider-Man Swings Into Darkness. Yeah. But, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> really, really long title. So, we, we... And I think it's actually... This is it ties back into our last discussion. Columbia... And Sony have been very smart. Just instead of letting the rumors propagate, just put out a press release. Yeah. Paul Giamatti's The Rhino, put out a fucking press release and shut everyone up. Yeah. So anyway, we've been learning a ton about all these people that are in this movie. And and I mean all these people. <laughs> yeah. So we've got, obviously, returning, you know, Andrew Garfield as Spider-Man, Emma Stone as, as Gwen Stacy, Sally Field as Aunt May. Yeah. You know, the expected things. Mark Webb is directing again. Mm-hmm. Um... And the first sort of big thing we learned, a couple, this was last year, I think, was that Jamie Foxx is playing Electro. Yeah, yeah. Electro, kind of a weird choice of villain, but Jamie Foxx is great. So. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, and picking Jamie Foxx to be Electro clearly says they're going to do their own thing with Electro. Which is good. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, this is just me, I don't give a shit about Electro. I've read a lot of Spider-Man comics, I cannot tell you a fucking Electro comic. Not, not yeah. one, I... I don't care about Electro. Okay. So so at that point, everyone was just sort of like, oh, cool, we've got a movie villain, whatever. It's yeah. a little weird that they're not doing Green Goblin in film too, but we'll see. Yeah. So then we but learned... But Electro, it's like we know what yeah. they're going for. It's like, this is kind of cool. Yeah. At, least it's, at least it's not the expected choice. At least it's something right. different. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. And Jamie Foxx is you know, hot off the heels of Django. Yeah, he was yeah. Just... Now after having seen Django, I'm even more excited for that because we, yeah. I definitely, it definitely was last year because I remember hearing about that before I'd seen Django Unchained. So and now I've seen it like... Yeah, this yeah. this this looks pretty awesome. Yeah. I, I like the idea of that. So so that's a good idea. Then we find out Don DeHaan or Dane DeHaan. I don't remember know his exact name. Who was in Chronicle last year, the Josh Trank oh, superhero yeah. film, uh, and he was great in that movie. Really good performance. He will be playing Harry Osborn. So this immediately indicates that the world is broadening a bit. That we will yeah. have Harry. We'll probably have more with Oscorp, and we'll probably get Norman in there. Yeah. But no confirmation yet. So this was not overwhelming yet. It's just yeah. That, it's like you know you kind of anticipate yeah. Like Harry is probably involved in some way because they, they you know they teased a lot of the Oscorp, the Norman Osborn stuff in Amazing yeah. Spider-Man one. So it's like yeah okay they're probably going to bring in Harry. Yeah. So then we find out I, I I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact order. It yeah, doesn't really matter. This is but, the part where it really gets crazy. Where yeah. it's just like there was something new every week. Shailene Woodley, who you would know from, I think she's on the ABC Family Show. She was on it for several years, The Secret Life of the American Teenager, or something like that. She's better known for her role in 2011's The Descendants by Alexander Payne, starring George Clooney. Really good movie. She was fantastic in that. She's about 20, 21 uh, right now, I think. Yeah. And so she's playing Mary Jane Watson. And her age is significant only because that's a bit younger than the other teenage co-stars. Yeah. Although Don DeHaan is down in that range, too. Yeah. So, you know, Emma Stone, I think, is 25. Andrew Garfield is 28, 29. Yeah. So anyway, so we've got... So now we've got Mary Jane Watson in here. Yeah, which was... A bit of like, a surprise. Could have happened. Like, I yeah, could yeah. see, because, you know, you know, Mary Jane, obviously, 
probably next to Spider-Man, the most important character in the Spider-Man mythos that is still fucking alive. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, yeah, I anticipate most likely Mary Jane would would be involved in the franchise, but I at least I felt two was a bit soon. Other than maybe she would have a cameo at the very end was what I was suspecting. Like you know, she come in it's like you hit the jackpot tiger kind of thing. Like okay, yeah. I could see that. This right. is a, it's a bit much, but okay. Yeah. So then, but so far it's like, this This just sounds like normal, like we're casting, yeah. since we don't know the story, it's like, you know, whatever. So we'll, we'll figure this out later. Yeah. Then it got weird, because yeah, then we heard about a little actor we all love, Paul Giamatti. Yeah, I love Paul Giamatti. He's great. But he's coming in to play the Rhino, which is the weirdest casting I have ever heard. Yeah, which makes me... I am so... This is this is the thing where, like, I am so fucking curious how... What their version of Rhino's going to be. Because it's like, if you know anything about Spider-Man... I think you can, even if you know nothing about Spider-Man, you can guess what the Rhino is like. He's a really big-ass Russian dude in a Rhino suit. He's stuck in the Rhino suit. He's uh, basically a, an idiot. And, you know, he's basically a hired thug. Like, you know, Rhino, Rhino is not like this big Spider-Man villain. He's hired by other Spider-Man villains, typically... To go, like, steal shit and stuff like that. Rhino's not a villain you make a story around. But if you're going to pick a villain that's, like, a side villain in a movie, it's like, okay, I would Rhino would be one of the ones I pick. But I would not, in a million years, ever pick Paul Giamatti. Paul Giamatti is actually the exact opposite person I would pick to fucking play Rhino. You would get someone like Dwayne Johnson. Exactly, yeah. Like, someone who's big, who's muscular, and who's... And young. Yeah, exactly. It is, like, not fucking... Not Paul Giamatti, who's like forty-five years old. <laughs> you know, he's fucking. You know, he's balding. He, he's. I mean, I love Paul Giamatti. He's one of my favorite actors. He can be so intense, and he's really. He, he's such a great dramatic actor. But he's such a great dramatic actor. Why the fuck do you get him to play Rhino, the like most throwaway, just stereotypical thug character there is? Like you don't. You don't need to get an actor to play Rhino. You need to get a you need to get a weightlifter to play with Rhino. That's yeah. it. Like you don't need to get anyone who has any idea how to act. You get the fucking stuntman can play Rhino for God's sake. Like yeah. he doesn't need to say anything if you don't want him to say anything. He's Rhino. Instead, you get Paul Giamatti. So immediately, clearly, they have an idea here. Yeah, like something crazy has got to be going. If, although my dream is, I really hope that it is just. Fucking Paul Giamatti playing that version of Rhino. Like, they don't like CGI or anything. They don't like make him seem really buff. It's just Paul Giamatti in this, like, gray Rhino suit, like, trying to act all tough. And they don't try to change Rhino at all. I mean, that's obviously that's not what they're going to do, but that's my dream is to, like, walk into that theater and have Paul Giamatti walk on with, like, this shitty Rhino costume. <laughs> and, like, I will crush you, Spider Man! That'd be great. That'd be so great. I mean, I think what they're most likely going to do is in. Ultimate Spider-Man, there is the version of Rhino that is there that, in the comics I read, he only pops up, like, once, I think, as, like, a throwaway villain at the beginning of a story arc. It's the, the Rhino thing itself is actually a big mechanical, like, suit kind of thing that, like, this little dweeby guy puts on. That's probably what they're going to do, but it's still Even weird. Then. Even then, it's still weird. And just hearing the words, Paul Giamatti playing the Rhino... Like, I can't wait to just say... I was like, I'll sit through the credits, at least just to see the Rhino dot 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 dot. Paul Giamatti. Like, I just want to see that. Yeah. And it's, I mean, the thing is, when you first, when I first saw the story, I was like, Paul Giamatti in Amazing Spider-Man 2, I was thinking, all right, he's either going to be Norman Osborn, yeah. 
Maybe they're doing Vulture or something. Yeah, like Paul Giamatti. Like, you know, I would if, if I mean I wouldn't try to do Doc Ock again. But if I did, yeah, yeah. Paul Giamatti would be a pretty awesome choice to play a really like really dark Doctor Octopus. I think there's a lot of ways they could go. Yeah, but he's right. Like that's the last, literally the last Spider-Man villain I would expect. Yeah, exactly. He's just it would be more. Yeah, yeah. Any, anybody else? Like I, he, he would be better playing fucking even Scorpion than Rhino. Like be Rhino better was, being J. Jonah Jameson. Yeah, that'd be fucking great, actually. Be a very different JJ, but uh, yeah, much more, again, much darker. Yeah, <laughs> but anyway, so Paul Giamatti's Rhino. So now we're thinking, all right, we've got two main villains because these are big Spider-Man villains. I mean, not you know A-list, but they yeah. are notable. Um, they they recur a lot in the mythos. We've got Electro. We've got the Rhino. They're both played by big actors. We've got Mary Jane. We've got Harry Osborn. All on top of the initial cast. Yeah, this feels a little crowded. Yeah, yeah, but but still manageable. Still manageable at this point. Like I can still I can like ignoring. I don't know how they're going to implement the Rhino, but I can see the Rhino being a villain alongside Electro, like like it not fucking everything up. So now here's where we get to the point where. Everyone's mind is just blown, yeah. and this feels like they're making eight different movies at once. It's like that thing where they make two movies back-to-back, but they're doing it for, like, eight yeah. movies. Felicity Jones, who you would know from the film Like Crazy, or you might not because it was a little indie film. She's really good in it. It's a really good, like, romantic drama. I would definitely recommend it. She's a great young actress. She's announced to be in the movie. We do not know her exact role yet, so but, I will we put can, that we asterisk. Yeah. But the rumor from everyone who, who like, knows about what's going and on... And you should say, initially, Paul Giamatti playing the Rhino was a rumor until yeah, they yeah. confirmed it. So, and actually it was anything the same with, goes. It was the same with Jamie Foxx. Yeah. So all the rumors have been spot on about yeah. this film. So Felicity Jones is apparently fla- playing Felicia Hardy. Yeah, the black cat. Explain to the people who the black cat is really quick, so we can explain how crazy this is. Okay, yeah, so yeah, black cat is basically... Catwoman only that version. Black Cat is actually like when you think of Catwoman, Black Cat did that Catwoman first. Everyone thinks that Black Cat is like like ripped off Catwoman, totally different. Like Catwoman was completely different character before Black Cat came around. But Black Cat is basically like Peter's like fourth love interest, and it's like when he's he's already with Mary Jane and sort of he's struggling with his as he constantly does with his Peter Parker life and his Spider-Man life. His sort of Peter Parker romance life is all focused around Mary Jane, but as he's sort of being drawn to this his Spider-Man personality, he has this other this this girl Black Cat who's also a superhero but sort of an anti-hero, you know, Catwoman think of the kind of thing going on and sort of he's attracted to her and she sort of draws him more into his Spider-Man personality. And so she is a major supporting character. She's a character I've always wanted to see this character portrayed on film because I think you know, a key, uh, one of the key parts of the Spider-Man mythos is Peter's love life. That is, like, where actually the majority of the drama really comes from, if you look at it in these stories. And Black Cat's one of my favorite characters, because she plays that she plays that dichotomy between uh, Peter as Peter and Peter as Spider-Man so well, where his other love interests don't do that for him. And so, like, I've always wanted Black Cat, but she's a major supporting character. If you're going to do Black Cat, you need to do Black Cat. Like, she's a full, you know, she's you have to do Black Cat and Felicia Hardy. Like, you have to establish both those personalities. Black Cat has to be prominent. Black Cat has to be in, like, action scenes and stuff. Kind of like Black Catwoman Cat, yeah, in exactly. Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, exactly. Like, she has to be heavily involved, like, a significant part of that movie. On the posters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she's going to, like, it's fucking Black Cat. So, 
We have, and I will say, Felicity Jones is actually, I think, fairly sensible casting because Black Cat is a little older than Peter. Yeah, she yeah, is. Definitely. Felicity Jones is twenty nine, and I think she can read as old as they need her to because she is a very mature young actress. Yeah, and she's twenty nine. Andrew Garfield is in that age range. I think it could bring out sort of the maturity of the Andrew Garfield persona yeah. of, of Spider Man because because Spider his Spider Man is obviously he he plays him as a high schooler, but he is he's twenty eight. Yeah, yeah. And so that would work well, those two actors op- acting opposite each other. So that sounds like it could happen, but how the fuck do you implement this with Electro and Rhino and Mary Jane and Gwen Stacy and Harry Osborne? Yeah. yeah, so basically <laughs> what we've got is we've got because like Black Cat is like the linchpin for this stuff where we have because she is his third love interest in this movie and the third other costume superhero outside of Spider-Man. Yeah. It's like four total. Yeah. So far. That's fucking crazy. That's that is that is so much. That is like it is enough to try to handle one villain and having three different love interests or it's enough having like one love interest and maybe two or three like villain characters. And, you know, Black Cat's not a villain but she plays like an anti-hero villain-ish role. So she's yeah. like kind of occupy that spot. Having that all both of that? How the fuck do you do that? Like this is the part where my mind got blown. But here's the thing, you think your mind can only get blown once. But there's yeah. more. There's so much more, there's... Sean. Because this next piece of news, this isn't even casting yet. Yeah. This is Mark Webb has been making little updates on Twitter about the movie, and it, uh, Mark Webb is actually pretty savvy. Some of the things they've been doing, just releasing yeah. some pictures and like, uh, really cryptic you know, sort of hints at what might be going on in the movie, but doesn't like really say anything about it. Yeah. So one of those was a picture of a locker. Do you want to explain exactly what it looked like? Yeah, I believe the number was 21, I want to say. I can't Something remember specifically. Like that. But it, it's a locker where, you know, uh, in the Ultimate Spider-Man universe, uh, their version of the Venom character that you may remember from Spider-Man 3, instead of him being an alien symbiote that crash-landed on Earth or came here from the uh, John Jameson's astronaut voyage, like they do in a lot of the uh, spin-off stuff, they, uh, in Ultimate Spider-Man... The, the Venom thing is like this virus that they create, and they, uh, to, to, I think it's his father created it to cure cancer, and so it's in this, like, lab, and they're studying it, and, and Jonathan brought up the picture. It's the locker number 14, and it looks very similar to, in Ultimate Spider-Man, the, like, sort of locker freezer type thing where they keep that file, and it is locker 14 in Ultimate Spider-Man where they keep the Venom virus. Now, there's even more to this. He tweets this picture, and he does it on Don DeHaan's birthday. And he says in the tweet, happy birthday. So he is heavily implying. I mean, he's basically telling us Venom will be in this movie or the symbiote will be in this movie and it will have something to do with Harry Osborn. Yeah. And that means it'll have something to do with Oscorp, so they're tying this all into Oscorp, which we kind of would anticipate. Yeah, that, that, is, that is sort of the standard protocol to update dating Spider-Man mythos, is to tie everything into Oscorp. That's what Ultimate Spider-Man did. That's what uh, the Spectacular Spider-Man cartoon does. It's like yeah. a very easy catch-all. Yeah. So, this is... What's... What, how? With yeah. how? What? Yeah, how do you know? So, you've got the fucking... You've got Electro. You've got Rhino, you've got Black Cat, and then now also, with your Harry Osborn character, you're at least hinting at, you know, we might be wrong about this, but there's no other way to interpret this about what this means. No. Is that, then Harry Osborn is going to get the Venom virus and become Venom, is the, the best speculation you can do based on the, those cryptic hints. And if the symbiote is really in the movie, that means there, who knows? 
knows what else they could be doing. Yeah. That means they could be doing a whole symbiote arc with Spider-Man himself, as yeah. you usually do. Yeah, yeah, because it would be very strange if you introduced the, the symbiote and you did not do the black suit Spider-Man story arc where... You know, he's got the black suit. It gives him a lot of power. He gets really arrogant because of it. It feeds off of his emotions. He realized this thing is a fucking parasite. I need to get the fuck off. And he gets the fuck off. And then it ends up on Eddie Brock. He becomes Venom. That's the Venom storyline. You at least need to do that Peter Parker stuff. Or, like, what's the point of bringing you to Venom? Right. And, I mean, maybe they're setting up something here where it's just a little thing at the end, a cliffhanger for film three. But even then, you would have to do so much groundwork even to make a cliffhanger make sense. And I would like to note, this was day three of shooting when he took this... I assume this is just a set photo. Yeah. Day three of shooting. I I noticed from set reports, everybody's there. Andrew Garfield, Emma Stone. So this is a main thing they're doing in the movie. So, how the fuck do you send this? This is the point where we go from, like... I think actually it was probably Black Cat, but even further yeah. now, where I cannot come up... We were, we, as we said before, with Electro or Rhino or Harry or Mary Jane, we can imagine a film where you... Yeah, you yeah, yeah I, can definitely, I could definitely write that movie. But then you get Black Cat, and it's like, I have no idea how you Yeah, do I that. don't know how you integrate that character with all the other stuff going on. And then once you decide to throw Venom in the mix, I mean, at the very least, it seems like they won't be doing Eddie Brock, so they don't have that character... But the Venom suit brings so much junk with it. Like, you have to do so much stuff to get that, to, to pull that off. You know, like Spider-Man 3, that entire movie was about the Venom suit. Like, they had the Sandman stuff going on, too. But the main character thrust for Spider-Man was him dealing with the fucking all the shit around the black suit. And they you had to do basically all of that to do the black suit storyline, as yeah. far as it's like been represented in the comics, unless you do something really crazy. And I also don't think you can just pull it out of your ass in the second movie when he's been Spider-Man for a month. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he needs to be a little more established as Spider-Man, or else it doesn't. You don't have the sort of connection with him that it feels really significant when all of a sudden he starts acting really aggressive and stuff like that. So we're already so far past the breaking point in terms of how crazy this yeah. is. And then we get the final, and I assume this will be the final piece because they are shooting the movie. I yeah, don't know how like much it'd be more. Weird if more stuff came out now, where we have Morbius, the Living Vampires, in it or something. But who the fuck knows? We announced, and this was an official press release. There was never yeah. a rumor or anything. It just came out. Chris Cooper is playing Norman Osborn. Now, this is fantastic casting. Yeah, I love Chris Cooper. Norman Osborn's a cool character. Chris Cooper's perfect for that. But there was no time to enjoy this because now it's like. What the fuck? Yeah. So now yeah. we know they are at least doing Norman, probably doing the Green Goblin or setting the Green Goblin up. Yeah. But doing but setting the Green Goblin up and setting Venom up yeah, yeah. at the same time in a movie where Spider-Man also is fighting both Electro and Rhino and dealing with her relationship with Gwen and Mary Jane and Black Hat. Yeah. And his and his budding friendship with Harry Osborne. And a symbiote which is attached yeah. itself to his suit. And then his friend becoming Venom. Yeah, which is this is this is so much. This is as someone who has read a lot of Spider-Man comics, like it blows my mind because it's like like my brain is constantly trying to think of all the different ways you can try to connect Spider-Man storylines and shit with all these different characters. Where it's just like, I mean, I think one of the smart things is with Harry Osborn cutting out Eddie Brock and having Harry Osborn take his place. The more I think about it, the more that makes sense. Because, you know, obviously, 
you know, after Amazing Spider-Man 1 came out and they did the Gwen Stacy stuff, they were setting up in the background Norman Osborn stuff. The clear path these movies were taking at the time, in my mind, and I think in everybody's mind who knew anything about the comic books, is they're doing going to do the death of Gwen Stacy. Like, if you're going to do Gwen Stacy, you're going to do Green Goblin, Green Goblin's going to kill Gwen, Gwen Stacy. It's one of the most famous stories in all comic books. You have to, you fucking have to do that. And heavily involved in that story is also... Uh, Peter's friendship with Harry gets really strained because Harry turns to drugs. And it's, it's actually really well executed. It's not like the drug PSA type thing. It's one of and the most well executed drug things I've ever seen in comics. And I should note that when, every, when Dane DeHaan was cast, everyone assumed they would be doing that because he's the kind of actor who could very clearly easily pull that off. He, yeah. that's, that's the kind of character he played in Chronicle. Yeah. So, but so having the, like, you can, because now you can sort of do the Venom thing and have that be his drug addiction, because that's also sort of what the Venom suit is partially a metaphor for in, like, his original storyline. That's really smart of trying to cut that middleman out. It's like, so it's like, that's a really clever way of trying to cut out some of the fat. But they've got so much fat, so much fat on this movie that making that one clever little twist. It's not going to be enough. Like I have no, I have no earthly idea how the fuck they're going to do all of this. And what's so weird is that part of this is incredibly exciting because it's yeah. so. For for once, we genuinely have no idea what's yeah, going on in a no, superhero movie. Yeah, have no fucking clue. But we also have no fucking clue. That's a little worrisome. Yeah, because because in my mind, I have absolutely no goddamn idea how they're going to pull this off like i mean let me read the official studio synopsis when they the day they started shooting they released this press release and the studio synopsis is for peter parker life is busy that's an understatement jesus (laughs) in this movie at least between taking out the bad guys as spider-man and spending time with the person he loves gwen stacy high school graduation cannot come quickly enough so we also know they're doing graduation stuff here yeah yeah so we have a general timeline he's probably been spider-man for a couple of years this will probably be set around the graduation peter has not forgotten about the promise he made to gwen's father to protect her by staying away but that is a- even though that's not necessarily evidenced by the last shot of the original movie but but that is a promise he cannot keep <laughs> things will change for peter when a new villain electro emerges and an old friend harry osborne returns and peter uncovers new clues about his past so we know so this is just confirms the Electro thing. Yeah. I don't... So, it's kind of interesting. They, they, all the other stuff is kind of being kept hidden, plot-wise. Yeah. They do say Harry Osborn is an old friend. Yeah. That means there's more plot stuff here yeah. that we're going to need to go into, and they're doing more about the stuff about his past. So, now we just have these actual plot elements in, in yeah. with all this other stuff. So... Well, it seems really weird. I mean, I guess... Because also the Ultimate Spider-Man version of Eddie Brock was a really old family friend of Peter, so maybe they're going to try to tie that in and have Peter's family be more closely tied into the Osborns or something. But I think the way they, I, I think it's so, maybe that's just a wording mistake, but like the way they did everything in the first movie, he clearly knew nothing about Osborn Yeah, exactly, that's, yeah. that's why it seems really weird, where I can see like having the first movie having been like hinted at that some more, I can see that being another, again, a really clever way of trying to introduce that character in the second movie. Yeah. When they're supposed to have this, like, you know, long-established relationship. Yeah. So. But that's, so, yeah. so there's really no, just reading that plot synopsis, there's no room for all this other stuff, obviously. And then, you know, and then obviously Amazing Spider-Man 1 already has its own unique plot baggage around, like, Peter's parents and stuff like that, that yeah. they never really did anything with in the first movie that they obviously need to follow up on. You know, and the lizard is still alive. Like, they did not kill him at the end of that movie, so, like, he could very easily be involved in some way. I think it was probably, I think it was a very deliberate decision not to kill off that character. Yeah. 
Well, and it's, I mean, and, and going back to the first film, I think one of the things you and I both liked about that movie was it was a very sane Spider-Man film, down to yeah. earth, just the one villain, and it was very focused. Yeah. And <laughs> that doesn't seem to be the direction they're going in. No, <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. So, so yeah, just to recap, we've got Spider-Man, then you've, it's slash Peter Parker, then you've got his love interest, Gwen Stacy. You now have his other love interest that's like sort of the classical love interest that everybody really knows about is Mary Jane come in. Then you've also got another love interest, which is Black Hat slash Felicia Hardy. So she comes in, she's involved in some way, and she's tied into all the superhero stuff too. Then on the villain end of things, you've got Electro being what is obviously the principal villain because he's talked about here. Then you've got Rhino, which we know for sure, you know, Paul Giamatti's playing him, so he's going to be at least like a significant role. He's, don't get Paul Giamatti if he's not going to be relatively significant. Then you've also got uh, fucking Norman Osborn, who's involved in some capacity, who's obviously going to become the Green Goblin. And he's significant, it's Chris Cooper. You know? yeah, 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 exactly. And then also you've got fucking Harry Osborn over here, who has this old friendship with Peter, has this complicated relationship with Norman, his father, and is also somehow tied into the Venom story arc, which is one of the longest, most complicated story arcs from the entire comic series. How the flying fuck? How the flying fuck do you tie all that in? This is part one of a trilogy. They're doing the Lord of the Rings thing where they just go one a year. Amazing Spider-Man 2, parts 1, 2, and 3. Like, yeah, maybe. Like, like you seriously, there's enough cast members in this single movie with all, like, the plot stuff that would need to revolve around them that you could make three movies just with this. Where you've got Electro is the villain in the first one, fucking Rhino is the villain in the second one, Green Goblin is the villain in the third one. But with, with the Norman teaming up. Yeah, with Norman Osborn's Venom stuff sort of slowly building up across all three of those coming into a head along with his father in the third movie. Then you've got his relationship with Gwen Stacy in the first one, then moves on into Mary Jane in the second one, and slowly hits his Black Cat stuff, and then Black Cat is the primary love interest in the third one, and, and then he ends up going back to Gwen Stacy slash Mary Jane. So she dies at the end of the third yeah. one. Yeah, you've got enough plot stuff. Just from the casting news in this one fucking movie of new cast members to make three fucking Spider-Man movies, and those three Spider-Man movies would still be a clusterfuck <laughs> because of the Venom stuff. Like, I have no idea. Like, the only thing, the one thing, if this comes out, if there's a fucking dude who comes out and they say he's going to be playing a character named Ben Riley, who in the comic books is a clone of Peter Parker tied into the single <laughs> most complex sto- comic book story arc I have ever seen, the clone saga that spanned like eight fucking years in the comics, if that happens, my my brain will explode. Because they will if they do fucking Death of Gwen Stacy, Venom, and then the clone saga on top of it, I, movie. I don't know. I don't know how I would live my life. Like that would just be too much. I wonder if we get a runtime and it's like ninety-eight minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like not even that. It's like seventy minutes. It's yeah. like the shortest superhero movie on the market. <laughs> like how 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 the fuck? I just I'm so curious, and I feel like we can explain away a couple of these things. Yeah. In that I ass- I assume. Chris Cooper is not going to really take on the like yeah the Green Goblin role like, until three, and I yeah. think they're probably making a three film arc where at the end of film three, Gwen Stacy dies, and then they'll see where they go from there. Yeah, and that would be fine. And maybe there's all the Venom stuff. They'll just be introducing elements of the symbiote, and then that will take stage in film three. Although then, doing but then that, also Green Goblin needs to take stage. stage in film three. So doing those two in the same movie, if they're tied in with Harry, that would make a somewhat more sense. Yeah, it but, would be a little easier to do, but it would still be really hard to do to take both of those characters 
you know, full... So, you know, it was yeah. hard enough to do that in Spider-Man 3. You know, you see, like, Spider-Man 3 failed at that spectacularly, and they had Sandman as the other villain, villain alongside uh, Venom, and then they also had the new Goblin in there, and, and fucking Sandman's a completely minor villain. And yeah. so it's like, if you were going to pull it off, Spider-Man 3 had a very pretty good chance of trying to pull that off if it was possible. But it doesn't seem like that's particularly possible. It sure as shit does not seem possible to pull off Green Goblin and Venom in the same movie to me. Like, no. those are the two biggest Spider-Man villains I think you could for like a movie there's no they're so heavily involved with Peter Parker and his past that there's no and they're so heavily involved in their own large story arcs in the comic books I don't know how you do those in, two, in one movie I have no fucking clue do you know how you would do that with Electro and with Rhino no. and with Black no. Cat and with Mary Jane Watson and with Harry Osborn yeah oh, like, I was, like just even ignoring the love interest because it's like it's this weird two front like they're fighting this like two sided war where they've got the love interest stuff, which is immensely complicated, and then the fucking superhero shit, which is immensely complicated. It's like, it's hard enough to balance any one of those sides when they're as complicated as it seems like they're going to be making it, but for trying to balance both of them at the same fucking time? Like, how... What, like, what is Peter's life going to be like in this movie? That dude's going to be fucking... He's going to get no sleep. He's going to be completely exhausted. He's going to be running around fighting a different villain every single day, sleeping with a different girl every single day. Like, it's going to be... Like fucking Narukami from Persona Four, like yeah. it's just going to be insane. But that's a seventy-hour game, not a two-hour movie. Yeah. So, and like, and what if? I think this is actually possible that they we could still hear about this. What if Daily Bugle comes back and we get yeah, Betsy, what if point. we get Betsy Brandt? What if we get <laughs> J. Jonah Jameson? Yeah, it's like fucking it, it, like J. Jonah Jameson fucking makes Scorpion, and we have another villain on there on top of it. Like there we go. This is fucking. Oh, Jesus. Like, the, the only conclusion I can see for this is that at the end of this, they just do the Spider-Man one more day, where Spider-Man's life gets so clusterfucked, he's like, I'm just going to make a deal with the devil and erase all this shit, and then they start from, like, the ground up using still, like, you know, like, Mark Webb and Andrew Garfield still being involved, but they just like, we fucked up putting all this shit in the other movies, we're gonna wipe out the continuity, we don't want to deal with it. Make a deal with the devil. There we go. Wipe the slate fucking clean. Because, oh my god, what the fuck did we do? So this is... I I am really excited for this movie now. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited for the trailer, too. I know, like, yeah. I wonder how much of this stuff is going to be in the trailer. Like, if it is just a two-minute trailer where it's just like... Every single character gets like this ten second. Well, as I say, it's going to be Harry Osborn. It's going to be. It's going to be. It's going to be three minutes of like. First, you have Andrew Garfield. His head, but you know, turn to the camera. Yeah. He turns it back around. We fade to black. Emma Stone turns her head around. Fade to black. And then it's it's yeah. Jamie Foxx. Fade to black. Uh, Paul Giamatti. Fade letter. to black. Felicia uh, Felicity Jones. Fade to black. Dana Han. Fade to black. You know, um, Cooper. Uh, Sally Field. Yeah. Everybody. Fade to black. And then we're done. So, and <laughs> Spider Man Two. And they the they can't Spider Man Two. They can't even get any of the plot stuff or the vis- actual visuals. Just, yeah. If you liked having three or four main characters in a movie, <laughs> wait until you get this! A dozen main characters per film! Amazing Spider-Man! Action-packed! <laughs> like, and what's, what I'm actually so interested in is we know Spider-Man 3 was a clusterfuck because the studio basically yeah. took it out of Sam Raimi's hands yeah. and gave him all these plot elements. To the best of our knowledge, nothing like that is going on with this film. This is, Mark Webb came back of his own volition. He was not even, I don't think, contracted. Um, James Vanderbilt wrote the first draft of the screenplay. Other people have since come in to rewrite it. He was the writer on the first movie. Uh, You know, everyone seems very excited about it. 
it's it's only the second movie, and I know Columbia. I don't think the first one was successful enough that Columbia was just going to fuck with everything. Yeah. So this is. I think this looks like it's the movie they want to be making. Like, or what if it's not? What if the studio is just like fucking just went insane, and they're like, just put all the stuff in the movie, and Mark Webb just sits down there. It's like, you want me to put four villains and four love interests in one movie? Yeah. Yes, all of those characters are popular with all their individual audiences. We have to make this as broad as possible. Just like make a movie, throw every like every character in it because somebody's going to like that character. So the idea would be that the people who like that specific character will come to the movie to see that specific character. Like maybe that's the future of superhero movies. Yeah, which would be weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would. It's it already seems weird enough with Amazing Spider-Man Two for what we know so far. Is there anything more to say? I don't know. I'm still trying to, like... Like, I want to try to provide, like, my speculation for what the movie is going to be, but I still can't do it. Like, I can't... I literally cannot come up with an idea. Okay, well, you know what? Slot all those characters into a movie. Let's try it. Okay. Let's spitball. I'll start. You jump in when you feel you have a... a, All right. Okay. So, all right. We open some pretty basic, just, you know, world-building, showing Spider-Man. You know, that basic, you know, you start the movie out with him going around fighting some petty crime. Yeah. And uh, maybe during this section, you know, he's, he's talking to Gwen Stacy, trying to figure out how they, you know, he doesn't want to be with her because of, of her father, but he's, yeah. he wants to be with her because of this other stuff. And you know, while he's out, he runs into this, you know, this, this black cat person. And they kind of have a one-off sort of flirtation okay, scene. Okay, okay, here we go, here we go. So, because you need to have the fight at the beginning of the movie that's sort of like, that's a sort of a throwaway fight. Black Cat is that fight, yeah. where it's like, you do that at the beginning, it's like the first fight of the movie, Black Cat's robbing some store, Spider-Man tries to stop her, but like some flirtatious shit yeah, yeah, starts yeah. happening. Okay, I can see that. Alright, and then also during this part, while we're just doing the basic world building, first, you know, 20 minutes, he, he meets like a petty criminal, played by Jamie Foxx. Yes. And uh, this guy, you know, he's just... just Max sort of, Dillon, here yeah, we he go. Hasn't, Max Dillon hasn't become Electro yet, but we kind of set up that he's there. Yeah. Alright, so we've got that. Then, uh... He meets he meets Harry Osborn. Harry Osborn yeah, his, brings his him longtime back. old friend has yeah. come back. Yeah, his, he's he's back. He yeah. he was at a, like a private school in England. Yeah, he's come back to uh, to Orange Star High School or whatever. That's Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> Midtown High. Midtown High. I'm sorry. That's they're very similar. Anyway. Okay, yeah, they went to Orange Star High School. He meets up with Gohan. Spider-Man yeah. becomes Super Saiyan by the end. It's even more crazy than he thought. Yeah, no, no. They'll, they'll meets, blow up the world. Meets Harry Osborn. They go to Oscorp where Harry introduces him to his father, played by Chris Cooper, and we meet a lead scientist kind of guy there, played by Paul Giamatti. Yes, and, and, and there is... Oscorp is working on something called the Venom Serum, which is like this new miracle cure. Okay, and here we go. Because the, at the end of the first movie, they sort of like were hinting that Norman Osborn was really sick, right? So the Venom, yes. the Venom Serum is meant to cure whatever Norman Osborn is sick of. Yeah. Okay, so we got that. So now we've established all this. We cut away. We follow a little bit of Max Dillon now. Yeah. Some crazy shit happens, and he becomes Electro. I don't. He's a technician. He's working yeah, on yeah. the fucking uh, the telephone pole during a lightning storm. Lightning strikes it. He gets the superpowers. There we go. Done. Yeah, and he decides he's it's kind of like the Sandman thing in three. He's going to go. I don't know to rob a bank or something. Yeah. So, all right. Now we're back to Peter Parker and Gwen. And this is maybe maybe now we introduce Mary Jane. Yeah, because totally Mary Jane her. is like transfers. It's okay. All of a sudden, it's an anime. She transfers into their class. Yes, <laughs> the transfer student. 
She she sits next to Peter or whatever. And she's immediately, yeah. she has the hots yeah, for him. Yeah, the jackpots for the yeah. tiger. Here yeah, yeah. Peter Parker is trying to, you know, yeah, yeah, that would be great if she gets the empty seat next to him and that's why she says the line. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be really funny. Yeah. And yeah. Gwen is like on the other side. Yeah. And Peter's like, you know, uh-oh, this is... <laughs> and then all of a sudden he's Scooby-Doo and yeah. they all go out in the mystery van, the mystery machine, solve okay. crimes. So anyway, so sh- sh- she's in the movie now. I, yeah. I don't quite know where her plot goes, but she, we've got everyone in the movie. Yeah. So next, I feel like Peter's got to fight Electro. Okay, yeah, yeah, so... Do his first fight. But I'm sorry, how do we connect Electro to the Oscorp stuff? Because you have to in some way. Like, all the stuff I, okay, has I'm to thinking, connect. I, I think it's got to be a little later. We've got to have at least one okay. fight establishing Electro as sort of this threat. Spider-Man beats him and Electro, you know, kind no, of... No, no, no. Spider-Man loses in sort of a stalemate situation uh, where Electro does get away with what he's trying to get. Electro escapes. Spider-Man is not able to go after him because of what fluid ran out because that, ha- that scene did not happen in the first movie. <laughs> yes, that's got to be it. You're totally right. All right. Now I think we've got to do something about the creation of Rhino. Where, okay, he's trying to create this suit. It's kind of like a Doc Ock scenario. Yeah. So he could work with the Venom stuff or do some kind of big experiment. Yeah. Oh, man. I'm trying to... Th- how do you tie in Rhino with Venom serum? That's those two very different things, but... I think that's as good a thing as we can come up yeah. with on the spot. Yeah. Okay, sure. Okay. I will... Maybe... Fuck it. Maybe... Fuck it. He doesn't even have a suit. He becomes... He physically changes into this, like, big hulking monstrosity with, like, horns that grow out of his head because of the Venom serum. Let's just do that. That actually makes sense. Because that's a lot easier to do than trying yeah. to tie in the suit in any way, because that okay. suit's not scientific. So he wants... So what is his goal now, his motive? Does he want revenge on Norman Osborn? Does he want to get his research back? That's a little too close to Lizard. Yeah, but... Hmm, man, that's... that's Fuck, how the fuck... This is, this is hard to do. Is, yeah. there, is there a disaster at, at Oscorp that causes this? Spider-Man tries to stop it. He can't, and so he hates Spider-Man. Maybe, okay, maybe Electro robs Oscorp. Like maybe I love this. He I goes into Oscorp, and he sets off an explosion at Oscorp with his lightning powers because he doesn't have a good handle on them. Like, Oscorp has something like... You know, maybe, like, uh, Max Dillon has, like, some debts to Oscorp or something yeah, like yeah. that, so he has some vendetta against them. Sets off this explosion, and that's what infects Paul Giamatti with the, the Venom serum. And so he kind of goes crazy, transforms into Rhino, and, like, runs off. You know what would be a fun dynamic here is that he and he, Rhino and Electro, hate each other. And they're, yeah. like, fighting throughout the movie, so we've got this separate, like, antagonism in the background. Sure. That could work. Sure. All right. Meanwhile, you know, we got Chris Cooper dying... We've got Harry Osborn being kind of depressed because his father's dying. Yeah. His father's a dick, but yeah. he doesn't want him to die. We've got... So Peter's trying throughout all this to kind of hang out with Gwen Stacy. But, but, but it's like his life has become so stressful because... Okay, here we go. His stress from like trying to have Mary Jane's flirting with him so much and Gwen Stacy's getting really jealous of that is making Peter Parker's personal life really stressful. And so that's what pushes him more into his Spider-Man personality and pushes him even closer to Black Cat, yes. who now they're kind of working together like as like like casually like going out solving crimes together, yeah, fighting, yeah. fighting bad guys and just having fun and being really flirtatious about it. And and now he's like this is also helping him relieve the stress of the promise he made to Captain Stacy because yeah, yeah. now he has someone he can hang out yeah, with. He has and yeah, he has this other. He's going further and further. Gwen's really worried about him. Yeah. Mary Jane's a pretty minor player here, I yeah. think, so far. Yeah, we'll just go with that. And um, what is sort of the event that's going to bring things to a head? Is it going to be Rhino and Electro going at it in the city, and Spider-Man's got to come in to like pull them apart, three on three kind of fight? Ah, it's like the trick is you need to tie it in back into Gwen somehow. They, I don't know how you make her suddenly central to the event at the end of the movie. Hmm. 
But this is not the end. This is like yeah, the okay. middle of the movie turning point, something, some big action scene, because we've gone a little while yeah. without... So I like this idea that, that something happens with Electro and Rhino. Yeah. They're fucking fighting. Yeah. Spider-Man's got to put a stop to it. And this is sort of our big action centerpiece of the second act or something. Yeah, and, and at this point... Starts the second act. Yeah, and at this point, Norman Osborn has realized what has happened to Paul Giamatti's character, but doesn't tell anybody else, and he's secretly monitoring him using some stuff. Yeah, yeah. To, as, to like, a test for what is going on with the Venom Serum. And, and to keep Norman Osborn yeah. important to the film. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, okay, we've got this fight... Does Black Hat help him out here? I think so. Yeah, I think because Black Hat's Black Hat's kind of helping him out. Okay. I think maybe Black Hat finds out some information about what Electro or Rhino is doing and tips off Spidey, and they go off to fight fight them together. Yeah. Okay. So they fight. How does this fight go? Does it end with Electro and Rhino deciding to team up against Spider Man? I don't know. Like I think. I want to say at some point Rhino becomes under the sway of Norman Osborn in some way. I think that's how I would do that. Okay. But I don't I don't like I don't I don't see Electro and Rhino teaming together particularly. I don't see it either. I was yeah, just I mean, asking. Yeah, I don't think that. Okay, so <laughs> so there's so many like, already falling apart. There's so many plates spinning right now. It's like trying to like remember all the characters to like bring them you know, like we haven't even mentioned Aunt May. Like I have no idea how Aunt May is involved. <laughs> she has to be involved. <laughs> But don't know. I don't know like where she comes in. She gives Peter some like words of encouragement at some point. Sure, we can do that. Um, so, so after this, maybe this like is a wake up call for Spider Man. Like he's gonna stop just goofing off with Black Cat as much. Yeah. But he still has to beat these guys. But I don't know. I want to say at some point Black Cat goes over to the villain side. That like mm. there's something going on where her okay because Black Cat's. Father is also sick with the same disease that Norman Osborn has. And part of her motivation is she is trying to find a way to cure him. And so Norman Osborn uses that to get her on his side. Because also, because remember, in the first movie, Amazing Spider-Man got infected by the spider at Oscorp. So those spiders are also being tested using a form of the Venom Serum. So Norman Osborn is also using this whole opportunity as a big test of the Venom Serum, and so he's looking at Spider-Man 2. That's like, that's, I think that's, I'm thinking that's what Norman Osborn is He's going to use here. Black Cat to get to Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah. While he's monitoring Rhino, he sees they're hanging out together in that big fight we talked about. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah so then he uses Black Cat to get at Spider-Man because he sees maybe Spider-Man is the best test example, because obviously Rhino's fucked up. Like, Rhino is an example of how the Venom Serum went wrong, and Spider-Man is an example of how it went right. So he's using Black Cat to get at Spider-Man to test him even more to find out the limits of it before he risks himself taking the serum. Yeah. Okay. Okay, we're still in the second act. We're deep into the second act. What's Harry Osborn doing through all this? Harry Osborn's really depressed because he's not getting any screen time. Okay. So that's pushing him into this deep depression. He sees his friend is... Because over the course of this, Peter is withdrawing into himself and sort of rejecting his personal life in a way and embracing the Spider-Man side of things too much. Yeah, yeah. And so Harry is... And so that's part of the thing is that Harry's in this really dark place because his dad is dying. And so he... And he's kind of come to Peter. He's like, one of the reasons he went back to Midtown High is is to be closer to Peter, to have, like, this relationship with his old friend again because it's, his life is so stressful. But but since Peter's dealing with, like, all this crazy shit going on in his life, he has no time for Harry. And so that's making Harry, one, like, really angry towards Peter, but it's also driving him deeper into this depression. Is it making Gwen really uh, angry in the same way? And do I, she... I think, I think so. She's, get, she's getting really frustrated with Peter and getting really jealous because she still loves him. Peter's not spending any time with her. And, and she's sort of... 
and she assumes that Peter is in some sort of relationship with Mary Jane. I have an idea. Yeah. We have to work in. Gwen knows who, who Spider-Man is. Oh, God, I completely forgot about that. Jesus! <laughs> and she... Fuck! <laughs> oh, that changes everything! <laughs> I think we can work it in here. She and Harry start hanging out because Peter's being such a dick to both of them, she lets it slip somehow. Okay. Harry okay. knows. This gets back to Norman Osborn. That's how Gwen is involved in the final... Okay, okay, yeah. Okay, I can see that. That Yeah, that's how Norman finds out that... that Peter is Spider-Man through Harry. Yeah. yeah. That's that is good. That is a good, good that's a good path. Okay. I think that's as good as we can do right now. Yeah. A short notice. Because that does change everything. Yeah, I completely because fucking Gwen never knows in the comics, so I completely forgot that happened in that movie. Oh my god. <laughs> this is tough. Shit, shit. <laughs> yeah, it's so hard to handle Gwen's relationship if she knows that he's Spider-Man. Okay. It's hard to just like keep things from that character then. So Okay. What the fuck are Electro and Rhino doing now? I almost think we need to kind of rethink Electro's what Electro's doing. Like, what's his ultimate motive? Yeah, I mean, I guess does he want to get himself cured? Does he want to just like rob banks? Does he want to maybe? I want to say like some in some way how he got his powers also maybe should tie into the Venom serum. Like, okay. it seems like that the Venom stuff should be the linchpin of the whole movie. I think that's a good idea. And he so, was he was doing the electricity at Oscorp yeah, when this happened, and so maybe that's why he goes back to Oscorp. Yeah, and, that's and I why think I think he's instead of him wanting to be cured, he is drunk on the power, and he okay. wants more of it, and that's why he's going to Oscorp. Okay. He wants he wants to become even more powerful. And now, maybe, what's Rhino's motive? Rhino's fucking crazy. Okay. I think Rhino's just being manipulated by Norman Oscorp okay. at this point. All right. I don't think he has any like clear sane motive. So, are we going to get to another climax where everything comes back to the Oscorp Tower? Or the I, I think idea. so because I think I'm seeing the climax of this movie is that Electro does end up getting a lot more of the Venom Serum and becomes super super powered. That'd be awesome. Yeah, That'd be so great. you have this mega powerful Electro, and then Spidey has to find and figure out some way to stop him. Like Black Cat is also in like severe danger because she got shocked by Electro, like she took the lightning bolt for Spidey or something. And Norman has kidnapped Gwen Stacy. Yes, and is dangling her off a bridge. Okay. Well, he's maybe, not, but he's not maybe, to be I, don't, I wouldn't even say I don't even want him to have captured Gwen Stacy yet. Okay. Like, but he fuck, knows... Let's just push Gwen Stacy into the background. Like, she's going to be not as important in this movie, I think, okay. at the end. If you... Because I, I want to say, like, having a black cat sort of... She's so much more of a dynamic love interest at this point that she would have to be the one sort of front and center. That's true, that's Cause, true. Because especially with Gwen knowing that Peter's Spider-Man... You have to do something pretty extreme to make them not be in a relationship together. Because her knowing... Because the main hurdle for Peter with all of his relationships is the fact that he can't tell anybody he's Spider-Man. So I don't even know what to do with Gwen. Like, she's, she's... So I think, like, having her just become jealous and Peter maybe is, like, pushes away from her because he feels that pressure from that promise. We still agree. She and Harry are on similar paths in the background. Um, Mary Jane's just just there. Um, All right, so... So Electro gets way more power. What does Rhino do in this scenario? Does he he's being manipulated by Norman? Does he eventually turn on Norman, or does he? What does he do? I want to say Rhino dies at the end. Maybe he should somehow regain his sanity. Like there's and he helps. He's going to help Peter at the yeah, end. Yeah, yeah, I think so. His, okay, and he, like, like there's something there's something important to Rhino that that Spidey figures out what it is and yeah. like like his family or something and yeah. like uses that to sort of bring Rhino back to his senses okay. and Rhino. Like ends up like using so Rhino I think dies 
defeating Electro, like like tackles him into like the ocean or something. That'd be great. And and so he gets shocked from the from the water and like the connectivity, the conductivity, and Electro passes out and they capture Electro. And this is and all in the, in the in the final fight yeah, when they're going the to save fight. Felicia Hardy. Yeah. Um, and Felicia, meanwhile, she sees what happened to Electro because of the Venom serum, and she doesn't want any part of it anymore. Yeah. So she and Peter are going to kind of reteam maybe yeah re-reconcile yeah. so they, there's this whole final Peter, fight like, promises kind of to find to help her find some way to yeah. cure her father or like whoever's so, sick with the so this is sort of the whole climax yeah. going on and then and then like but but let's say Norman is like the opposite reaction of of a black cat where he sees what happened to Electro and he's like he's convinced now yeah like, yeah he, now yeah. he's decided he's going to take it so he ends up he takes the venom serum I think right after he takes it Maybe Harry walks in on him and maybe thinks that he's dead because it's like as when he takes the venom serum, like he sort of dies temporarily, like he's like really close to death. He collapses and everyone thinks that Norman is dead, like he's fucking buried. But he comes, but the venom serum like kicks in after the fact. He comes back to life as Green Goblin. But Norm, but Harry believing his father is dead is also what like motivates him to at the very end of the movie try out the Venom Serum himself because he sort of like sees it and he's like, like so driven into depress- depression that yeah, he, like, he picks meanwhile, up the Meanwhile, now that everything's calmed back down, this is where Peter goes back to Gwen finally. We finally yeah. bring Gwen back in and he realizes that he's gone through all this shit. Yeah, they, he has to have a good personal connection and so this is when he reconciles with Gwen and they decide yeah. to give it another shot. Yeah. And, like, and part of Peter's personal journey has been trying to reconcile his Spider-Man personality and his normal personality and he realizes the only way he can make those work is by going back to Gwen Stacy. And that's where the movie ends, and they think they're peaceful and happy and in love. Yeah, but, but the last shot of the movie is fucking Norman Osborn's grave, yeah. and then this fucking green hand punches through the dirt and <laughs> cuts black. I think we just described a pretty good movie, actually. Yeah, as best as we can do. Okay, we could. I think we could. Oh man! If we what had, a, how amazing would it be if that is like the exact <laughs> plot to that movie? Because I think that's because that might be the only plot to that movie you can even do in working in all this stuff. And you know, I think okay, we did that in about half an hour here. If we had a year to write it, I think we could make that work. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I mean, the unfortunate thing is that in all of that, we you know you. Inevitably, completely lose the Spider-Man with the black suit. Like, there's no way to work that in. Yeah. But like, I can. But going through that process, I can definitely see how that if they do it like that, that Venom serum can become a catch-all, and you're yeah. not really doing Venom that much. Like, yeah, yeah. like I think Harry would still become Venom basically, but but not the Venom kind. Like of maybe going. maybe even Harry gets bit by a spider also, and so like Venom is very much an evil Spider-Man. Like you can even just take it. That'd be okay. That way. Like, like, you know, it's kind of like what Electro does where he gets souped up. It's like a souped-up Spider-Man, so it's like right. consumes him and, like, changes him. Physically. But in either case, these are both setups for film three. Yeah, where fucking Spidey ends up having to fight the Green Goblin and Venom sort of at the same time struggling with, yeah. like, his really personal relationship with Harry that has become extremely strained because now Harry can transform into Venom. And then at the end of that movie, during the climax, Gwen gets killed, and then that drives him to go to Mary Jane. And Black Cat's just like a fuck buddy or something. I don't know. Okay, well, so... But this movie, I think it works because we've got Electro as the centerpiece of the villains. Yeah, yeah, especially for, like, the fights and everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We've got Rhino worked in there fairly organically. Yeah. We've got Norman doing something in yeah, the whole and, movie. And sort of, like, being that menacing, like, the actual, like, architect of everything. We've we got Black Cat, crucial to everything. Yeah. We've got Gwen. She's in the background... But she's like relevant. relevant. Yeah. yeah. And and we've got a strong character arc for, for Spidey, Spidey across yes. the entire movie. 
where he has to resolve his issues. And then Mary Jane is sort of just there as, as, a mostly, for... yeah, as mostly just as a plot device and for some fun scenes in the school, but she's not that important yet, and her she has a much more prominent role in the next film. I Okay, I think this is as good as we could ask for. Yeah. On I, short notice. I can't believe we, we actually were able to connect all that stuff. I don't think we forgot anything really major. No? So. All right, well... <laughs> Man, that was, that was a mentally exhausting process, trying to go all that shit. <laughs> Come back next week for more, Sean and Jonathan. <laughs> trying to figure out what the fuck Amazing Spider-Man 2 is going to be, the new podcast we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we've almost hit three hours on our recording yeah, time. Yeah. As so, long as that Spider-Man movie will have to be three yes. hours. Yeah, I know. Even as we described it, that would be a long fucking yeah, movie. Yeah, because that is so many character plots to try to juggle at the same time. Anyway, I'll remind you guys one more time. You can buy my book, Fade to Lack, Critics' Journey Through the World of Modern Film. Visit www.fadetolack.com for full details and links to buy. It's got a review of The Amazing Spider-Man 1. Maybe I'll have to devote a full book to Amazing <laughs> Spider-Man 2. Yeah. So I'll write a book about like the history of Spider-Man in, like from the framework of what they worked into Amazing Spider-Man 2. There will be, yes, there will be many critical texts in the future, but for now... We'll see you next week with something, I guess. What the fuck? What's the fuck's going on, Sean? I don't know. I don't. Th- whole world Starcraft done. two two comes out, but I don't know if I'll be able to play. No, that I just mean what the fuck's going on with everything we talked about today. We're going crazy. I don't know. Yeah, that's fucking. I just can't wait till the Justice League movie gets made and we hear about the twenty seven characters that are in that movie. Yeah. God, God, save us all. <laughs>